Welcome to Scouting the Culture, a weekly podcast series about the Carolina Panthers and their approach to the 2022 NFL Draft. We are a proud part of the Ride Network, and please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe if you enjoy what we have to say. I'm your host, JJ Hardy, and you can find me at Panthers Culture on Twitter. And joining me, as he does every week, is Vincent Richardson, Managing Editor at The Ride Report. What's up, Vince? Hey, JJ. How you doing? I'm doing good, man. Doing good. It's been a slow week for Panthers news and... No, it's kind of like one of those things that feels like the quiet before the storm. And yeah. I'm just trying to figure out if that's what it is or not. You know, is you know, we had so much activity in like the first week or so of free agency, and there were so many rumors about Baker Mayfield or either things going on with Jimmy Garoppolo. And and then in this week, it just feels like a lot of that subsided. You know, you came out, you know, they had the ownership meeting. Yeah. And, you know, the takeaway from those meetings, you know, seemingly coming from the San Francisco camp and the, the Browns camp was that they both were patient um, and what they were thinking about doing with their their quarterbacks that everybody's waiting to see where they where they end up. And I know San Francisco came out and said, you know, that they could easily see Jimmy Garoppolo on the roster. You know, they don't have to do anything irrational. Basically, the Browns were saying the same thing. Now, with Baker Mayfield, there's a lot of uncertainty, you know, with Deshaun Watson. And so having Baker Mayfield could be a luxury for them, you know, if Deshaun Watson is suspended early in the year and, and Baker Mayfield is there. Both of those scenarios seem really unrealistic from a business perspective. But, you know, maybe they do have a little bit more leverage in this situation than we than we know. I think in the Browns case in particular, it's just hard yeah. to imagine. But Baker Mayfield would just sit there and allow himself to be used like that. And you've got um, Jacoby Brissett. And they, they went out and signed Brissett as well as the thing. Right. And they already have a backup quarterback who they probably envision being their backup rather than it being Baker Mayfield. I think it's just lip service at this point, just seeing who will give in first, you know, in terms of, asking for what you know they think is fair for for Baker Mayfield so we'll we'll see what happens on both of those fronts but the reality is because of what has come out of their camps and you know some of the uh the information that we're getting from the Panthers beat writers and their lack of interest in either quarterback especially at their current prices um you know it's kept this week pretty quiet you know I don't think the Panthers really made any um transactional news this week did you not not that I can think of no yeah, so, you know, the one thing that was circulated all week long that I at least seen at least several times early in the week was that you know, the Panthers have somewhere around $30 million um, in cap space, which leads the NFL. And, you know, when people see that, they automatically think, you know, you should go out and, and, and spend some of the money, you know, let's make the team better. And there's still a few um, top name free agents that are out there. I just think that the Panthers are at a point now where, they want to have some optionality um, entering the draft. Um, personally, I would like to see some activity just because it makes the week more exciting, but I don't, know if it makes the, I don't know if it makes the football team better, right? So I think at this point, if I'm thinking logically and, and not thinking like a fan that just wants to be satiated by, by action, um, I think logically the Panthers want to get to the draft, um, see what happens at six, if they're if they're top players there that they want, they'll draft that person, that player, that position, and then they'll continue to build in free agency based on what they do at number six if they stay at six. 
Yeah, um, I, I think I think that's the thing. Is like it, what they kind of want now that for no, either you know players to go and sign before the draft so that they can make the decisions based on that, or players to wait until after the draft. So we talked about Dwayne Brown before. I either you know and Gilmore we talked about a lot as well. Either sign somewhere and we'll plan accordingly, or we'll wait until the, you know the big things whether the Panthers take a left tackle at six um, right. or a quarterback or what they do at six or what happens with that. And it's right. one of those things where, in a way, they probably don't want to go and sign a left tackle. Ideally, they'd, they'd like to see how the draft plays out before committing to signing a tackle or not. But you'd quite like there to still be a tackle available if you don't address one and you want you know, the day after the draft, you go, actually, Dwayne Brown, we, we would quite like to sign you. Um, yeah. here, here, here's a two-year deal. Please come and be our left tackle. We didn't get around to drafting. Right, and you can know at that point in time exactly how much – money and cap space that you have to spend, how much you would like to reserve for the season and, you know, exactly what you need to address, you know, on the team. And yeah. and I, honestly, like I said, logically, I, I get that approach and I think it's pretty prudent, you know, to, to wait and see. Uh, but, you know, again, it's just hard to look at us having the most cap space in the NFL seemingly for the first time, you know, in, in recent history. And, and it's like, man, do something, like get one of these guys. But the reality is there's really, I mean, there's a lot of places where we can improve, you know, on, on the roster. But in terms of what's available in free agency, um, I think there's only like, what, three positions that I would really target right now that would be tackle. Maybe if you can find an edge and and what, what would you say, maybe linebacker or? I, I, in terms of depth, linebacker, but I think tackle and edge are the only positions where I could see them drop signing someone and that person being the starter can't be one. Yeah, and, and that's what I'm thinking too. So so let's see, you know, I mean it's it's April the the third. It might be April the fourth or fifth before this actually airs. But you know, we have uh, what roughly three weeks or so until yeah, the draft. Three and a bit of weeks. Yeah. Yeah. So I mean I hope that we can be patient, you know, during this time and not drive ourselves crazy with waking up every day hoping for a notification to hit that the Panthers have done something crazy. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or more likely hoping that they haven't done something crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, hoping that they haven't. And so, um, so yeah, that's where we are, man. And and I think because we didn't have a lot of activity, you know, there's not a lot to talk about on that front right now. Um, like I said, it feels like the quiet before the storm. Um, we have heard, you know, from Scott Fitterer, you know, as recent, recent as last couple of weeks. And, you know, and, and there were some, some, uh, some notes that came from Matt Rule. You know, there's this overwhelming sentiment of, you know, it seems like Panthers fans are excited when they hear Matt, um, Scott Fitterer talk about, you know, what the direction is. And then Matt Rue comes and says something. It's like, ah, oh, boo, you know, tomatoes, you know, <laughs> because nobody wants to trust, you know, his approach. And, and I think the most recent thing that I heard was his plan for playing Kristen McCaffrey. Yeah, you, know, you hear that and you think, oh, don't say that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I know for me personally, you know, I, I have a, uh, a thing with Christian McCaffrey where I know I'm hard to to get when it comes to him, you know, because I think about Christian McCaffrey from the business front, then I think about him from the player front um, and how he's used. And, you know, business-wise for the last two years, I felt like the rebuilding team should have traded Christian McCaffrey just because I felt like his value was high. Um, in 2020, um, I think it was is at his all-time high. And then, you know, we were this bad roster that ended up having the, the highest paid running back in the league. And something just didn't feel right about that. But every year, you know, I, I have that same approach. And even if it doesn't make sense, I still say that he was the most valuable person on the team so we could get some draft picks and, and continue to build through the draft. 
But, you know, here it is in the entering the third season of that being the case. And I think uh, Chris McCaffrey is going to be RB1 uh, based on everything that I can see at this point. Uh, they just restructured his deal. and Yeah, and he's, more, he's definitely not getting traded now if they've done that, right. I imagine. Right, maybe not next year either. So I think I'm going to have to adjust to life with Christian McCaffrey, whether I like it or not, you know. And so, uh, and I, but I do like it, you know. Let me clear that up for anybody listening. It's not. I think Christian McCaffrey is is amazing when he's on the field. I just need him to be on the field. And so, the way that we thought would be best for Christian to be on the field is that if he's used more as a wide receiver. A lot of people just say, you know, put Christian in the slot. I don't think that that's necessarily... Just move him around. Make, make, you know, he's a smart guy. He can learn multiple different positions. You know, just, right. just move him around and, and challenge defensive... The, the, you know, the defensive rigor of the system to, to deal with different players moving around and you use him in all kinds of different ways. Make it make him as, as multiple as possible. Yeah, and, that, and, that's, and that's what I want for him, right? You know, I, I, I remember... You know, Matt Rule saying early on when they when they signed or after they signed Chris McCaffrey is that, you know, you really can't, you know, define him by one position. You know, he's a wide receiver. He's a running back. He can be a returner, this, that, and whatever. It, but the reality is, you know, like 99% of the time, we just see him playing one position and yeah. use like one way, even if it's as a runner and catching the ball out of the backfield, like he's typically starting out from the same point in the offense. And I think he would be used better even if you flex him out to wide receiver, then you make the defense make the determination whether or not they want to cover him with a, a DB or a linebacker or a safety or whatever. But you make them think, and that's the that's the point of this. And you and can so, and you can and you can still keep the threat of the run with jet motion and stuff. You, know, you, you don't exactly. It, it, it does. It, it, they're not exclusively either rules. Right, and that's and that's me, and that's my frustration. And I think the frustration that I've had with Christian being on the roster is that we have like this, this perfect weapon of sorts offensively. And, you know, and the type of guy that we've seen, you know, have that San Francisco has in Debo Samuel, that Atlanta now has in Cordero Patterson. And Chris McCaffrey might be a better football player than either guy. Yeah. And we're not getting the most out of that football player, that weapon. And it's frustrating because like they, they have catered the offense around, him in a certain way but not in the ways that would make him most effective and yeah. watching that and watching the struggle through that and then adding to, adding on to that you know him being unavailable due to the way that they use him inappropriately has just been a frustrating process so when people see me and my ways of tweeting about that I know sometimes it's taken out of context but it's really like either we figure out how to use him or we move on from having him so it doesn't basically uh you know, slow down the process of the system and and how good it can be. Just learn how to play without him. But I know he's better or we're better when he's on the field. I want to see him on the field. Matt Rule was asked about it this week, and he basically said that, you know, Christian is a back, you know. And I was like, ah, I hate when you talk because I want to see him as more than that. And I'm finally at a place where we have a new offensive coordinator, you know, potentially have the ability to use him in different ways. But the way that you said that makes me think that you're still the same old Matt Rule and you're still going to use him the same way. And honestly, it just hasn't worked out for one reason or the other. One reason being um, he was primarily used as a running back the last time we saw him before he got hurt. We didn't see enough, 
you know, passes to him. Um, and then um, then the other thing was the injury thing. So I'm trying to figure out ways to to use him better, you know, in more of a uh, workload share situation. And then even when he's on the field, use him in different positions where you can attack defenses differently. So um, that's to me was the biggest news of the week. And I know that's not very significant, but it was worth noting because yeah. it just worries me a bit. Um, but other than that, um, not a whole lot of news going on. I know there was a tweet circulating this morning from Joe Marino um, that surfaced up and it, it and it's more, I mean, at this point, you have to treat it as gossip more than anything else. But I do respect Joe Marino. Basically, he said that he's all out on this coaching staff in Carolina, which is very unsettling to see on the on the Sunday morning. Uh, you know, especially when, I mean, it's not like, the, the fan base is 100% on the Matt Rule train anymore. But, you know, you try to convince yourself, you know, that there is enough change in the coaching staff with getting a new offensive coordinator and Ben McAdoo, however lackluster that might have been. But, you know, you have uh, Chris Tabor, you know, as your special teams coordinator. You have um, Dave Campen as your offensive line coach. And then you bring in um, an old name, um, you know, like um, – What's, what's my guy's name? Um, Steve. What's, what's uh, the I'm defense? Terrible with names. I am. I know. I am, I'm I am so, not I'm good so, at names. Yeah, I'm so bad because if I, I see him, I see his face, and but you know what I'm talking about the defense. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, and so you know you have him back, uh, you know, for his second stand in Carolina, and you're like, okay, the staff uh, well, is that. Well, Steve Wilkes. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm bad when I'm I'm thinking and trying to talk at the same time. So Steve Wilkes is back. And so, and you're like, okay, you know, definitely have a lot more of experience this year and that should insulate Matt Rule. And, but then you see somebody like Joe Marino tweet that and you're like, okay, man, what has happened now? Like, why? Yeah, I, I think for me, at least, that the, the I, I think at this time of year, not a lot of these things, I mean, obviously, you know, Bruce Arians retiring is a significant exception, but not a lot is radically changing in how coaches are approaching things now. This is not the period of time when big coaching news breaks, you know, barring the re remarkable. It's right. more just, just, you know, information slowly leaks out and you hear things. And, you know, yeah. uh, I, I think Matt Rule is definitely in a position where he has to earn trust this year. You know, yeah. I, th I think, you know, I, you know, I remember when I was in high school and sort of teacher talked about, you know, like, the idea of like you know trust credit and you start out you start out at zero and you do good stuff and you you know you earn trust and you do you know less good stuff and you lose trust and you know <laughs> and, and, and you know new head coaches should start out roughly at zero and Matt called Matt Rule is definitely now in debt of trust you know he right. he has he has squandered the trust he started out with right. um and uh, uh you know I think he can get it back I, I you know I don't think the Panthers are in some I think there was definitely a, a, a direction they could have taken this offseason, which would have put them down a kind of path of no return, yeah. you know, doubling down on their mistakes type approach. And I think they have, at least to this yeah, point, they've, take, they've actually taken quite a cautious approach and one which definitely does not commit much one way or the other beyond the next season or two. So I think if he has a bad year, they are well positioned to move on. Um, but, I, but I think that is, in, I think just wait for the season now. It's just it's to be determined, basically. Yeah, and 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 I'm there, you know, I'm there as a fan, you know, with you know, kind of sitting back and seeing what would happen. I do think I put myself in the situation as a fan, you know, when Matt Rule was hired, you know, to it's 
instead of like starting him out with zero trust, I think I started out started him out with like a hundred percent trust. You know, because I didn't know him very much at all before they hired him. Like I had my own coaching candidates that I favored, and he was nowhere near the top of that list. But you know, in that process, everybody talks about the different candidates and what they could bring to the table. And there were a few people who had research rule enough to think that he would be good in Carolina. And I pushed back initially, but by the time the hire was made, it's like anything else that your favorite team would do. You know, you don't control it. So, you know, you either accept it or you don't. And I'm a person that tries to, to start the person off with like 100% respect, at least, you know, like. Yeah, no, yeah yes, yeah. I think, at least for me, respect and trust are different things. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're different. You know, so I, I think I just wanted to, to respect, you know, the coach for the things that, I learned about him in the process of trying to figure out who he was and you know, what he was about, you know, what he kind of at least felt like he was representing when he came out with his introductory uh, speech and everything that kind of blew, you know, the NFL media away. And, his, and I was his, like, his youth pastor impression, I think. Yeah, his youth, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, you know, I found myself almost to the point of saying hallelujah a few times you know, when he was doing that, but, you know, but that's something that's, that's really inspirational, right? You know, as a person that didn't know a person, you know, it's all about first impressions and he's a very convincing. I'm, I'm really (laughs) unsure. I I genuinely, I remember, you know, Josh, who used to be the man against the other report and now is that executive. Um, He, he, uh, I remember talking to him about it at the time. So I'm going to, I genuinely don't know whether this works on like 30 year old men with mortgages. Like I, I, like, (laughs) I'm sure this works well on 18-year-old kids. Like, I, right. I, 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 right. I'm just not sure whether that sort of, you know, like maybe if, you know, if he was Nick Saban coming in and got like seven national championships, well, say, say he was Urban Meyer coming in with multiple national championships and took such yes. an approach. Like, yeah. but, but, but it is that thing of like how you work with 18-year-olds and how you work with like 30-year-olds who've got three kids and have and been doing this a, long, a lot longer than you have. Yeah, and seven figures in the bank, you know, so yeah. or more, you know. And so I think when I look back at that time, if we remember the offseason in 2020, Matt Rule basically came in and took a roster that was aging, and he converted that roster into like into like one of the youngest rosters, yeah. if not the youngest roster in the NFL. It would it, and it definitely was by far the newest roster in the NFL. I remember yeah. seeing a statistic at the time that said that the Panthers had like 40 something odd percent of players returning from the previous year. And the next closest team to being that new had like 64% of the players returning. And yeah. so we were by far almost by 20% more new than the next newest team. And so I think Matt Rule coming in the door if he didn't have youth, he just had new players. And and I, players I think and, and that is that can take to that. And if you only look at what I think, I wrote an article last off season about this. But I think the comp from Matt Rule in terms of what he's done in Carolina is Pete Carroll, right? Because Pete Carroll was another college guy who was taking over a, a bad team. Right. And he, he did the same thing. He just completely ripped the roster up and started afresh. And, you know, guys got very, there was a lot of churn for the first two or three years. There was a lot yeah. of churn, you know, you know, fourth round draft picks getting cut after a year kind of stuff, you know, just like, you know, okay. you know they, they signed like four quarterbacks in the first three, you know, signed or drafted like four quarterbacks in the first three seasons. 
Yeah. And it, it, it's just, you know, it was this real, we're just going to keep turning it until we hit on some stuff. Right. And they did, and it worked, and it was great. Right. I think the issue you've got in Carolina now is they've done that, and they just haven't quite hit on enough stuff. They haven't hit. And, and, and either they're going to have hit, you know, you know, they've made quite a lot of moves and stuff, and you look at the, you know, like, you know, you look at the moves they've made, and you go, there's enough of them that could be really good or could be okay, you know. Right. Matt Ioannidis could be an, you know, Hassan Reddick, I think, was a real hit last year. Yes. Um, I think while the Gilmore move was misjudged in terms of where they were as a roster, I think he was a really good player when he was here. I yes. think if you know if you know, if Austin Corbett and Bozeman give you you know 40% of a really good offensive line, that moves you forward in a really big way. Uh, yes. You know if 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 um, if you find a quarterback in the draft um, who is able to make an impact, that obviously moves you forward massively, but. You know, if Ionidas, right. if you can find an edge rush, if, if, if they come out of the draft with a couple of starters and the ones they found in free agency all really turn it up, then maybe maybe things change. You know, I think they've put themselves in a position where they can turn things around. Right. But I think ultimately they, they've, they've rolled a lot of dice and not hit, which is yeah. a terrible mixed metaphor. Um, and, but, but, and I, but I think the biggest thing with that, though, Vincent, is, is that you know, they've rolled the dice and haven't hit. A, a part of them rolling the dice, you know, through the draft, you know, I think their drafts have been, you know, at least in the first couple of rounds over the last two years, have been pretty decent. Well, last year was more I, about. I, I think if you look at their draft classes over the last couple of years, I think you look at it and go, there's a lot of potential. And it, this is the same thing again. It's the, there's lots of potential, but it's now the year where some of it has to come through. Like, yeah. you know, Derek Brown has done some really good things but so right. far has probably not paid off the seventh overall pick. No. no. Ito Gross Matos, again, done some nice things. Does he look like a second-round pick yet? Probably not. Um, you know, Jeremy Chin has absolutely paid it off. I will, you know, that, yeah. is, that is a definite hit. But, you know, Troy Pride hasn't. Kenny Robertson hasn't. No. Bravion Roy, I'd say, probably has played to the level you'd want a sixth-round pick. Ditto with Stanton Harvard. Those two guys right. at the end of that draft have played to where they were drafted, at least. Then you look yeah. back at last year and you go, okay, JC Horn just didn't play. Maybe he works, you know, yeah. you know, but but just don't know. Terrence Marshall Jr., he did not play like a second round pick last year. Brady right. Christensen, yeah, Tommy Tremble, maybe, you know, they're still sort of unclear whether they're going to look like third round picks. Yeah. Chuba was a bit uh, mixed as a fourth round pick. I think when you get, you know, when you get the fifth round, you get like a hey, Davion Nixon, Keith Taylor. Um, uh, you know, it starts to look better as you get to like the fifth, sixth, seventh round picks again. Right, but but those, those picks like value picks, you know. Yeah, yeah. Listen to Taylor. Yeah, but but if you look at sort of the day two picks in potential, in particular, you think okay, there's lots of potential there. You know, if 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 Gross Matos takes a step, if Marshall Junior takes a step, if Tremble takes a step, if Chin takes a, a yet another step, and and Brady Christensen becomes a, st- a quality starter either at guard or tackle. Suddenly you're going, okay, that was these were really good drafts. Right. But if but if Terrace Muscle Jr. doesn't improve and Gross Matos doesn't improve and Tremble doesn't improve, you're mm. then looking at going like it, it we've got a lot of depth from our second and third round picks, but not it it's still in that like to be determined kind of range. And I think that's the thing, like rule has to rule has to show one way or the other that either he can develop these guys or or time's up. That's what I was going to say. You know, what you just said was essentially it. And so my question, since you already said it, is this. 
Sorry. Do you trust that he can do that? Do you trust, like, from what you've seen in two years? No. <laughs> no I, I don't trust that he can do it. Do I think it, do I think, like this, I've, I've said things sort of to this effect before, but, like, I think keeping Matt Rule was probably the only decision they could make. Right. I just, I think you come back to the point of the Panthers have one pick in the top 135 this year. Right. And they have, you know, one of the big issues when Rule took over from like a narrative point of view was he cut Cam. Yeah. You know, you know he will be the head coach who cut Cam. Right. And although there is some chance Cam comes back, he's probably going to be the head coach who doesn't resign Cam Newton as well. <laughs> I, yeah. I don't, I think, you know, if you were trying to hire a head coach this year, the narrative is, okay, well, you've got a first round pick, but you then haven't got any other picks until pick 137. You haven't got tons of cap space. And also you're probably going to have to just let the face of the franchise for the last decade, decade walk again. Um, yeah. But, you know, you know, there were 10 new head coaches this year with Bowles taking over in Tampa the Panthers would probably have got their 10th choice head coach. Like, you know, maybe people would have taken the Panthers over Houston, but right, if you're, right. if you're, you know, the thing is, is the head coaches have to be really careful with which jobs they take. Cause you often, if you really foul it up, you don't get another shot. You know, yes. if, Matt, if Matt rule screws it up this year, he's not getting another NFL job. He'll probably go back to college and he'll be fine, but he's probably not getting another NFL job. And so, you know, why would you take a bad opportunity if you've got a good one? True. And the, but the best thing the Panthers can do this year is make sure that the worst case scenario, they're at least a good opportunity next year. Man, you know, like, that's it. Happy Sunday. <laughs> I went into the 2021 season after pretty much being beat up all off season because I really didn't trust the whole Sam Donald thing, right? Mm -hmm. So <clears throat> I, I tried to convey that in my tweets, but because I had been so supportive of the 2020 regime, you know, and the team that was led by Teddy Bridgewater at quarterback, I had a lot of people, you know, coming to me in my tweets and my mentions or whatever you call them and ask me, Panthers culture, are you going to support Sam Donald the way that you supported Teddy Bridgewater and so on and so forth? And I was like, oh, I don't want to, but uh, I know it'd be a bad look if I don't at least try, you know? And yeah. by saying that I'm supporting Sam Donald, you know, that was me trying to put some support behind the coaching staff, you know, in the, in the front office that went out and acquired him. Because one thing I can stand on during that process is that I tried to get people to not focus on Sam Donald's inabilities or abilities or whatever, you know, and just focus on the fact that he didn't decide to trade for himself. Yeah. They made that decision. I do think Matt Rule and Scott Fitterer were heavily influenced to make that decision um, yes. because of because of the owner who we haven't talked a lot about um, basically putting the pressure on them to find somebody to play quarterback other than Teddy Bridgewater. And yeah. that started with his press conference or his interview after the 2020 season. And, you know, ironically this year, we haven't heard that same owner come back and talk about his plan 
for you know the Panthers after not having a really good year with Sam Donald. And so my thing as a fan is like, okay, after we had a lackluster year with Teddy Bridgewater playing quarterback, you came out and said, you know, you have to find that guy, right? You have to find that guy to play quarterback. And we know a whole lot of things were attempted and failed, you know, whether it was the attempt to get Matt Stafford, the 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 situation with Deshaun Watson in 2021. Um, but you know, we know that there were attempts made, but then ultimately they were unsuccessful. And so I think the decision to go out and just find any guy other than Teddy, I think that's how we got to Sam Donald. So I know Matt Rule catches a lot of flack for it because, you know, he's the guy who has to get out in front and try to justify, you know, why they went out and got that guy. He's the guy who has to go and speak multiple times a week during the season to defend <laughs> Sam Donald. Yeah, and so I don't know. I know I've been hard on on, on Matt Rule for, for, you know, being behind that acquisition, but it's largely because of what we just said. He's the person trying to justify it. And what, where it got bad for me last year was in getting out and speaking multiple times about this bad quarterback, you know, during the preseason, during camp. I mean, at, at that time, I guess that was probably about the most optimistic time you could have for him. But it became, well, if Sam Donald is the quarterback, then let him be the quarterback. Let him be the quarterback that's the leader, that's seen as the leader, like allow him to be everything that you said that he could be. And it just seemed like there was this, this big thing to protect him. And that's when I started losing faith in that process all around and whether or not they really wanted him um, or if they had to just figure out how to work with this young guy and justify the fact that he's on the roster. But that doesn't matter anymore, right? You know, we know that they moved on beyond the thought that Sam Donald might be the future of the Panthers. And I'm okay with that. But now, you know, we went through that second lackluster season in a row. And, but this time the difference was that Dave Tepper didn't come out yeah. and tell us what the plan was going forward. And there's been some frustration about his silence. Um, I know, I know that's a little pivot from how I started this, but, you know, but it just came up naturally. So I think we need to speak on that for a second. Um, in your, in, you, in, the, in your own words, Vincent, like as a fan, how does it feel to see Dave Tepper be silent during this time? I mean, I, I find it quite hard to generate much strong feeling towards it. I, I do find... I think it's one of those things where there is not a rule book to how to be an NFL owner. Like there's not one way to do it. And there are people who do it effectively in very different ways. And there are people who do it badly in different ways. I, I think the thing for me that stands out is not that he isn't talking. It's that he, he has stopped talking. <laughs> it, it's the fact that he spent, you know, he was, he was very front and center through a lot of what happened in his first two years or so as an owner, you know, he would speak regularly with the media. You know, he would give press conferences when they made decisions. You know, he talked after the season. He was, you know, you know, if you go back and watch their, um, the, I can't remember what they called it now, but the the like the draft show they released, Panthers released after the draft last year, like the 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 you know forty minute special, one hour special, whatever it was. I remember. I remember. I forget what like, it's called. It's cool. But if yeah. you go back and watch that, he is clearly very front and center in that, and I would be astounded if that happened without him either wanting that to happen or at least being very okay with that happening. He was clearly yes. placed as a proactive part of the Panthers' decision-making process. 
in a way that that you know Gary Richardson clearly wasn't, but a lot of owners weren't and, yeah. and haven't been. Um, you know, and there are owners who are. You know, Jim Irsay has clearly been a guy. If you go and watch any of the Colts draft stuff, you know, Jim Irsay is quite hard to get away from there as well. He's not unique in it, but it's the fact that you know it's all stopped. You know, he just he just hasn't. You know, he has not talked to the media about this stuff in a very long time. And it's not that you know, oh well, an opportunity hasn't come up. He was asked to speak at the owners' meeting and he declined. <laughs> he declined. And, yeah, and that speaks to someone who doesn't want to answer the questions they'd be asked. Right. Um, and maybe he just weathers it out and things turn around and, you know, the Panthers start, you know, seven and one and whatever. And he comes out and goes, surprise, now I want to talk and tell you about how we have this wonderful master plan that I didn't tell you about the time, but I've, I've retrospectively decided to have master plan. Or, or you know, I, I think there is a real point where in a year's time we could be talking, you know, there will become a you new, know, if Matt Rule is terrible, if everything just goes to absolute, you know, disaster uh, next season, and they sit picking with a sec, sitting you know, the second pick or the sixth pick or you know, a top ten pick, they fired yeah. Matt Rule and they fired Scott Fitterer, and they're starting from the ground up again. Right. At that point, there starts to be questions of: Are you going to Jerry Jones it, or yeah. or or are you going to run an actual NFL team? Because like yes. you know. I think you know, there, there is this argument of, you know, if, if you were a billionaire and you spent $2 billion on an NFL team and you were a real NFL fan, you'd want to play GM, wouldn't you? And I, like, I, I know if, if I went and bought the Panthers, I would absolutely play GM. But right. at that point, at some point, you'd have to go like, either make yourself the GM and go full Jerry Jones and you're the guy right. speaking to the media and you're defending the actions and it's no, oh, well... Bob made this decision and I trusted Bob with this. It's, this is the decision I've made. I'm the owner. I'm doing this. Right. Or you go the other way and go, actually, okay, now I'm going to appoint someone to run it. And, you know, yeah. I will have an opinion and I can sit there in the meetings occasionally and say, oh, have you thought of signing Bob? But, but, but ultimately, I def- you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's the GM running the team and the head coach running the team. And I'm just there, you know, saying, you know, yes, okay, when you do major, you know, you, you the owner traditionally signs off on first round draft picks and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, and that's fine. That's, you know, it's ultimately a business decision as much as anything else. So like yeah. sign, signing, owners signing off on stuff is kind of okay. Yes. Um, but it's when owners want to be a proactive part of it. Uh, you know, you, you can only go so long before without either taking the public responsibility for making decisions or stop making decisions. You can't be the person who is part of the decision-making process while ostensibly having no official role in the decision-making process. Yeah, I, I think that's the part that's like really confusing for me because like you said, in that, you know, that little behind the scenes documentary that they did, you could clearly see that he was part of the process. And I've even heard, I think Matt Rule and Scott Fitterer say on different occasions how involved he is and like, you know, the decision-making process and making sure that they've thought about all the alternatives and outcomes and, you know, the, the players and, you know, they, they got to kind of like brief him up on the situation and stuff like that. You know, in my line of work, you know, there's two type of people who sign, you know, off on the final executed document, right? The contract or whatever. And you have the type and mostly, you know, most people are going to want to make sure anything they put there John Hancock on is going to be something that they can really get behind, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But you have those ones that are very, 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 uh, I won't say skeptical, but you know, like just very thorough and reviewing the documents that they sign. And then you have the ones that do like most of us do, 
when it comes to like agreeing to like anything that we want to participate in. It's like, okay, here's the terms and conditions page, you know, click yeah, this, and, you know, <laughs> yeah, sign here and then you can move to the next thing. I think some NFL owners are like that where they have enough trust in the people that they've hired, you know, at the GM level and at the head coaching level to where whatever they're presented, you know, from the GM and the coach, you know, they can pretty much say, okay, you know, yep, I know that name. I know that guy, you know, I can sign this and I'll be okay. Dave Tepper seems like, like you said, he's more involved in that, right? Yeah, I think I think there's, there's a real, and I think in terms of like overseeing people, I think there are the, the really, really good overseers ask a lot yeah. of questions, but don't necessarily tell, you know, unless they think you're going to do something incredibly stupid, don't right. tell you what to do. They ask you why you're doing stuff and what it is you're doing and how it's going and they check in on right. you and they, they make sure you are not being, you know, going down an interesting path, but they, they, yeah. you know, they aren't just saying, do this, do that. You know, you, you, you get employers who do just want you, know, this is how, this is what I want you to do. This is how I want you to do it. Now go and do it just exactly how I would do it. Only don't make me do any work to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think there is a, you know, when you watch the, this make my own personal opinion definitely but when you watch the the bits with david tepper in the, in the the documentary it's not just that he's asking questions he's making suggestions and right. there, there's a there's a real bit in it where they're talking about where they're discussing trades and he says something to not not to fitter or rule but to like one of the more junior front office people about like negotiating that then you know they're negotiating the potential trade a draft trade and you think yeah. Just shut up and let the guy do his job. <laughs> like, like you know, he, he, you know, he, you know. Ultimately, you know, this is not your, you know, if this is not your deal, you know, you are the owner. Right. You know, I can absolutely understand why, as the owner, you'd be interested in the macroscopic, but as yeah. an owner, you absolutely should not be dealing with the microscopic. You know, yeah, you, know, you I agree with to, that. You, you have to, you know, you cannot be going like junior front office executive. I will tell you how to negotiate a draft day trade. Yeah, that, this is not how you run a team. And I can, yeah. I can understand that. I also understand how, like, in a draft room, there is a lot of emotion, there's a lot of excitement. And as is often the case when you have these high, you know, relatively high stakes things, people mm-hmm. say things to be saying things because they, the idea of sitting there in silence and watching almost feels excruciating. Right, and so right. you end up with lots of people making pointless advice just for, to, to, to do something to release some of that energy. Yeah, just yeah. for the sake of like you're being involved and feel like you're doing something, yeah. Oh, not, not even that, but just because it relieves the tension for you. Like feeling like you're helping is a way of relieving the tension and, and, um, and dealing with the powerlessness of the situation. I see what you're saying. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And, and I yeah. kind of get that as well. But I, I, I you know, an owner being part of the draft day discussions, I think isn't the end of the world, but I right. think there is definitely a line where, you know, you have to trust people, you know, this is not, you know, Dave Tepper has not spent thousands of hours watching draft day tape. You know, he no. does not, he does not no. having, you know, he might, he might've watched five or six guys and have an opinion on that. That's fine. That's what, you know, you're an owner, not a GM, but you right. also have to realize that you're an owner, not a GM. Yeah, I mean, he just wouldn't strike me as the type of person, and I don't know him. Maybe he's a football freak, you know, and he watches, like, you know, extensive film, you know. But like you said, I don't see him as being a billionaire with, you know, the enterprises that he has and the things that he has to keep track of to have a lot of time to dedicate, you know, to who would be the best quarterback for the Carolina Panthers. You know, I don't think that he he has the expertise to see, you know, mechanically, you know, the, the things that they do well and don't do well 
to make that determination for the Carolina Panthers. It just bothers me that I see him that way. I would think most people should see him that way as an owner. But then anytime, you know, we're talking about potential quarterbacks that could be drafted for the Carolina Panthers, there's one in particular where it's always talked about that this quarterback went to Dave Tepper's alma mater. And it's like, what should that have to do with the process? And I hate that in Carolina, that just that link, you know, is something that could sway his team to draft a quarterback that probably shouldn't be drafted that high, regardless what you think about him or any of the prospects in the in the in this year's draft. I wouldn't want my owner's, you know, connection or affiliation to a prospect by alma mater to determine whether or not we draft the guy. I won't spend a lot of time talking about, you know, that that prospect no. on this show or whatever, but it's like those are the things that kind of scare you. But, but, you know, because and I, and I think there, are, you, you know, you can you can definitely flip that over to the football side with the Panthers. And I mean, yeah, there was I saw a clip this week. It was um, I think it was a Bill Maher clip, but it was Bamani Jones debating, I think, a former exec with the Miami Marlins about okay. whether sports teams are run as meritocracies. Right. And it's and, and I must say, like Bamani's kind of like, are you insane? Of course they're not. <laughs> and, it, and it's like, and, and don't be wrong, I think there are definitely meritocratic elements to it. But you look at the Panthers and go, okay, but why do the Panthers have more Temple and Baylor guys? It's not, it's not because, you know, and it is it's the same biases of coaches like players they know. It's the same right. reason why with Ron Rivera, you've got Brenton Burst and Amini Silatolu and, and yeah. you know, the same gang back together every year because they were the guys he knew. And that, that's, right. that familiarity is a big part of this. But that's not, you know, you know, and but each you know, a good team would be able to separate itself from those things and to, to take a step back and to kind of go, okay, are we actually making good decisions or are we just making decisions that make us comfortable? And and that's the part that bothers me, Vincent. Like more than anything, I'm never comfortable with losing, right? Yeah. And I don't really trust year to year that doing the same thing with the same people is going to make me better or is going to help me improve. I know that there are certain decisions that have been made over the years that have a lot to do with the familiarity that you're speaking of, you know, whether or not it's our backup quarterback for the last two seasons being PJ Walker, yeah. uh, us having guys like Colin Thompson being, you know, the tight end three and, you know, or Sean Chandler getting a lot of playing time at safety um, John Franklin getting a lot of Sam Franklin. Yeah, time. Yeah. It's Sam Franklin. Yeah, I'm sorry. Sam Franklin getting a lot of time at at safety. But you know, you have all these guys like you know Tecklenburg, and some of them play pretty good for who they are. But every year they're returning, and even the guys that didn't go to Baylor and Temple, you know, you have a guy like even Justin Burris, who's a fine guy to be a depth piece, right? Yeah. But the you reason know, why they signed him, not someone else, is because they know him. It That's what I'm saying. They, they, they yeah. look at every single safety in the free agent cast and go, who is the absolute best free safety here? Let's look at the, the fine shades of grays that separate Justin Burris from Bob Smith. And, you know, yes. It's, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, they're kind of much of a muchness. And we know Justin, so let's sign up. And that's the thing that I'm like, while I'm okay with Justin Burris, and this isn't about him or yeah, no, no, particular, it's just about this the, the, the practice, right? It's about the process. The yeah, it's we hear process. so much about. It's the process that we hear so much about that doesn't seem like it is able to evolve. And Justin Burris 
like you said, like there's, you know, over a hundred free agents out there, you know, and a lot of them play safety and a lot of them can do different things. And it's like, okay, how much do we have to pay Justin Burns to come back? Right. But like you said, like, okay, before we bring Justin Burns back, let's go and look at those other guys and see, you know, what do they do that we like, you know, what, what do they do that's like really compatible with the system that we run that we would like to explore because we're not wanting this guy to be a starting safety, but like, what if we could like bring this other guy in and just, you know, that little thing that he does a little different than Justin, like it's something that we like a lot better. It's something that could help, like help move this team forward, even by an inch, you know? And I have exactly the same view of UDFAs every year. Like, yeah. personally, I think every NFL team should have, like, 30 rookies on their 90-man roster. Right. Because, ultimately, if you sign a street, you know, if you go and sign um, Sam Tecklenburg, Sam Tecklenburg has been in the league for two years now. He is mm-hmm. a kind of an okay backup center. Maybe, maybe Sam Tecklenburg is unfair because he would probably make the 60. But there are guys right. who are going to make the, the 90-man roster who it's kind right. of, you know, they've been on practice squads for, like, four or five years. You know, they may have played two or three games and they're kind of known entities. And don't be wrong, right. like opportunity is a massive determinant in how NFL careers go. You know, Brandon Zilstra is not suddenly becoming a much better receiver. He just got more of an opportunity. You know, yes. w- Willie Sneed spent like four years on practice squads, including Carolinas, before he actually got a chance to go and play somewhere. Um, right. but, but just go and sign like 20 UDFAs at all different positions and, and obviously don't sign guys who you think have no chance of making a free roster. But every right. time you sign someone new, there is a range of outcomes. And ultimately, some of that range of outcomes includes you improving. Whereas you sign the same guys back, particularly if you're signing guys back to be on the 90-man roster, like we do not plan for you to make the roster. And ultimately, there is very little room for you to exceed that expectation. So you're signing someone with like the, the, the kind of the, the presumed outcome being we cut this Yes. And with very little room for them to get back to improve on that. Whereas if yes. you sign a UDFA, it's, again, we assume we are going to cut you, but there is a right. 10% chance you don't and you make us better. Whereas if you yes. sign the same guys back, you miss out on that 10% chance. And that's, that's, that's exactly where I'm at. You know, I, sometimes it's hard to really convey what you just said when I tweet about these guys, right? And now the fact that I really didn't want them to go back you know, to that same well with that player. Sometimes it's not about the player himself. It's about the fact that I kind of know what I'm going to get from that guy. And I know that guy isn't going to get me over the hump. So take a chance at another guy. And if that guy can't, you know, it turns out to be somebody that you have to cut or can't play, then you're still in the same place you were with the guy that you couldn't win with in the first place. And I, and, I, and I think that's, I mean, there is definitely some value. Like once you start, so you know, each year when teams start you know, filling out their rosters, they generally start at like 35 to 40 players who are under right. contract for next year. And then you start getting up to like 60 before the draft. And then you add players after that. Right. Um, and there's definitely a value to making sure you have like a decent floor. Like I, I have no problem with them signing Julian Stanford to be the number four linebacker. Yes. Because ultimately, you can still bring in more linebackers. You know, they, they will have, I'd imagine, when it comes to the 90-man roster, there will be eight or nine linebackers there. And if right. Julian Stanford 
is offering you the base level of what making the roster looks like. You give you give that solid baseline and you let young guys come and potentially surpass him. The right. issue that you sometimes get, and I think is is the case with Burris, is that like they've got those guys already. You know, if you look at the, the, the safety room, you've got Xavier Woods, and we'll talk about safeties a bit later in this draft. So I'll just in this podcast even just say very quickly, you've got Xavier Woods, Chin, Franklin, Hartsfield, and Robinson. And now yeah. you've signed Chandler as well. So you've got right. six safeties already. So you're yes. signing Burris as the number seven safety, and he won't necessarily be number seven in that order. But you're right. signing guys. You know, there is no issue of will the Panthers have an okay backup safety. The Panthers will will have plenty of options for backup safety now. But the do. issue is is that you're then going to have a position where you've got a you know you have Sean Chandler potentially or Sam Franklin just taking up a spot on the 90 man roster when ultimately you're not getting any improvement because they were both on the roster last year and it's just you're not making steps forward you're just staying where you are and that's and that's the thing like you brought justin burris back and of the safeties that you just named in my mind based on the play i've seen on the field in the last two years justin burris is the fourth best of the group at best yeah he's fourth or fifth for me yeah right and so it's like Okay, you know, I get it, but I don't get it because we have enough depth to where, like, Justin Burris shouldn't have even been considered, you know, to to come back. I would rather that take my chances on some new guys that could potentially give me more because of the of the top three, four, I would have Chin, Woods, uh, Hartsfield, and Robinson. Yeah, for me, it's Robinson versus Burris, four versus five. Yes, and. I just, like you said, you know, I just don't see why you would prioritize bringing him back so early in free agency, especially if you haven't done a comparative analysis of the whole group. And I'm assuming you have it, you know, of the whole group of guys who could give you that safety hybrid type role. And there's no way that the money that you dedicated to Justin Burris couldn't have been at least gambled on someone else that could potentially bring you something different or improve you a bit than from what you already know you have so yeah i i think i will reserve judgment a little bit until you get sort of a week or two after the draft because like the one thing is is that a lot of these guys are on contracts that they can just cut them like a month yeah, after the draft yeah. and sign a udfa and you know because you know that some of it is about insurance rather than anything else but if yeah, it's you, like you know the, the if, if, hill yeah, last year for safety, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, but if the panthers have those seven safeties um, going into training camp, I'd find that a really unambitious <laughs> approach. It's just the like, you know, we're accepting, we're not really, you know, Xavier Woods will probably make them better, but it's just the kind yeah. of, you know, we've just, we haven't really challenged ourselves to try and make a real improvement. I just, I, there, there is, you know, people talk about like the hope and optimism of the draft. I think UDFAs are almost like free hope. It's yes. just, you know, you, you have to be a little bit smart. You can't just go and sign anybody. But right. but but it's almost no risk to just bring in 20, 30 UDFAs and just, just give yourself a chance. And guys who, you know, you talk about competition will clearly have that hunger, clearly bring that competition to to to, to make your roster better. I just think I, I think it's a really easy way to make your roster better. And, and, and then some of the things that bother me about even the, the UDFAs over the last couple of years, like I'm not 100% sold that, We've always kept the right UDFAs. No, I, I think Bonafon should still be on the roster. Yeah, it's just so so those are the things that bother me. But in that same vein, you know, we're talking about having 
depth, right? You know, having players, you know, where you can bring in guys and, you know, and, you know, as, you know, free agent pickups that can kind of be like the waterline for, you know, that position in terms of what your depth looks like and what the quality of play is above that line. And I think, you know, the the groups that we're going to focus on on this episode of Scouting the Culture, you know, it's going to be two position groups where, you know, we can help build depth, but definitely, you know, if we can, you know, get lucky in the draft, you know, we can improve these groups, uh, you know, at least by a small margin, you know, and, and then I think for one of the groups, we can even, you know, take a big leap, just depending on, on how you approach the position and the value, you know, and where we might draft that. So um, the positions that we're going to focus on, on episode four of Scouting the Culture are going to be the defensive tackle group, and then we're going to focus on the safety group. Yeah. And um, to start off, we're going to start with the big guys up front, the big, mean, nasty guys, and that's the defensive tackle group. So now before we get into the prospects, Vincent, let's talk about, you know, who we have on this current Panthers roster and then, you know, how much do we need to take a look at, you know, the defensive tackle room after that? So I think, obviously, if, you know, with the signing of Ioannidis, um, you've got Brown and Ioannidis, who I would imagine would start. Um, I think Davion Nixon is primed to get a, a, a bigger role. I think, you know, if they hadn't signed Ioannidis, I think he probably would have started. Um, right. So I think those three guys are pretty much locked in. Well, I think they are locked in. I think the question then becomes whether they carry four or five defensive tackles. I yes. think you have a couple of options in Bravion Roy and Phil Hoskins. I think it would give you quite different things. I mean, if if they want true nose tackles, I think Bravion Roy will make the roster. I think he is the only kind of out-and-out one tech they have apart from, from Brown. Um, yeah. Whereas I think Phil Hoskins gives you more versatility. He can, right. I think he can play a bit of one, but he can also play three as well. He, uh, he, he I actually was really impressed with him in the preseason. Like, he was someone I knew... I just couldn't find any tape on him at Kentucky last year. It was not someone who I really watched. Had right. no had no expectations of him going into training camp. Um, <laughs> and then I watched him in in the preseason. Not to say no expectations. Not that I thought he'd be terrible, but I just didn't have a preconceived view of what he would be like. Right. And then he went into the preseason. I was I thought I was actually really impressed with him. And I, I think you know he only got a little bit of playing time before he got hurt. But I think he he's someone who I think you know has a chance to to go and earn a roster spot again. Um, yeah. But I think for him, it really comes down to to how they want to to use this group and and whether they want more. You know, I whether, you know him versus Bravery and Roy is as much about style as it is quality. So right. I think for the the Panthers, I think in a way I think this would be quite a hard group to upgrade because I think the issue is is that not you know that normally the way you upgrade it is either you go and add a starter or you add someone who you can develop behind a starter. Right. Um, in terms of long, significant upgrades. And the issue is that the Panthers have currently is they have their starters. They're probably, you know, I think they could, if they if they hadn't signed Ioannidis, they probably could have found an upgraded starter in the draft. Yeah. Um, but with Ioannidis signed, it's hard to imagine they'll draft someone who would come in and start. You know, and so at that point, you're then looking at the later rounds. If you know, yes. you're going to draft someone to be a rotation piece, you're then looking at day three. And then right. the issue comes in, if you're drafting someone in day three, in, you know, given what you've seen from Nixon and Hoskins and Roy, are are you really making an improvement there, or are you just adding another name to the mix? So yeah. I, I, again, if someone falls and you love the value, then take somebody. But I, I think it's a position group that is actually going to be quite hard to upgrade. But that they actually should then go and get UDFAs. You know, you know, you know if you're going to go and bring in someone to be the number six defensive tackle, number seven defensive tackle in in training camp, 
get rookies. Yeah, we could go and grab UDFAs and, and find guys who can come and compete and offer depth. And, you know, I, I, so I, I, yeah, I think it's going to be quite a hard position group for them to upgrade um, through the draft. Yeah, and, and that, honestly, it's like one of the few position groups that I think it's like, okay, that's a good position to be in, you know, because like, it's definitely not a position of need heading into the draft. So you don't feel like you have to like waste one of the few picks we have on one of those, on that particular position. Um, you know, so we have Derek Brown, you know, we have um, Ioannidis and we have Davion Nixon who, you know, we said it's going to be our top three. And then it's all about, you know, what we have behind those guys and, and Roy and Hoskins and then um, whoever, whoever else we might find, you know, as a UDFA or, you know, potentially like later in the draft. Um, so, you know, there's not a big need, you know, but we still have prospects to go through. Yeah, um, it's, worth, it's worth considering what else is out there because, you know, when you talk about like what other teams might do and how, you know, what other, what there is in the draft, even if you don't want to draft those players, informs what you can do and how you go about things. Yeah, I mean, I just, I really hope, you know, before we get into the prospects, we spent the seventh overall pick on, on Derek Brown and he may not ever be able to live up to, you know, his, his, his draft pick. And that's fine, right? Because what's done is done. Yeah, it's not he his fault. Played. Yeah, yeah, he didn't pick himself, you know. But you know, there was a need at the time for us to to, to improve our run defense, and he was looked at as the best run defender. Yeah, um, and, he, and, he, and he probably and he pro- and he probably is the best defensive tackle from that draft still. Yeah, it, still, it's it, it, it's not that he. It's one of the things where it's not that he has been bad as such. Right. It's just that given the position he plays and the style of player he is. He would have to be an all pro to justify the, how high he was taken. Yeah, and, and and I've come around to that, but you know, but it still doesn't bother me that I have Derek Brown on my team no, because no, that's no, good. Not at all. Yeah, so I I just hope that in year three, that whatever ceiling he has, I hope he gets a little closer to that um, because, like I said, it may not ever be enough to justify number seven, but I think it's still improvements he can make in this game that would make him still a really, really good NFL player, somebody who can really make the team. And I think the Panthers have examples of that. Like, I think Shaq Thompson is a great example of that guy who for a long time, it was really not clear how he fit into what the Panthers were defensively. You know, he was kind of the third linebacker. He was a first round pick, but who wasn't starting and kind of, it wasn't like, you know, he's bad. It's just, there was clearly no room for him to start. And, And I think in the last year or so, Shaq has taken... I, I think he's a real one has taken a real leadership step, but I think, yeah. you know, he, you know, him as an off ball, you know, blitzing, you know, roaming man coverage matchup defender. I think he's taken, I think he's, he's really improved and he's really found a role where he can thrive. And I think sometimes it takes, you know, as you know, you know there are first round picks who just completely bust out. Right. But I think if you, if you can set that base level of, I'm just going to be a dependable, good starter. Right. And, and and that gives you a chance that over time you might blossom into something else. Even if that's yeah. not some all pro player, you can you can add more strings to your bow over time. And you know the the, the crazy part about a guy like Derek Brown is, you know, and a Shaq Thompson is let's say they never become like superstar level players at their position, right? Like Shaq wasn't a superstar um, outside linebacker you know, at the end of his, at the end of his first contract. And when he was extended, he got a lot of money. Yeah. And, you know, so that, that's some of the consternation around him is, you know, was what he got paid. But like you said, like, the last great, the last great Herney contract. Right. 
but he hasn't let us down since he got paid, no, right? No. And so that's the best thing. It's like he's played his best ball after his contract, and he's been available. Yeah. Derrick Brown is a guy that was drafted high, you know, and he, he's going to be on a, you know, you know, I'm thinking they might exercise his fifth year option. I'd imagine not sure right. about that. Yeah, not not sure about that. But let's say that his fifth year option is exercised. I don't think he's a, a guy that would cost a lot of money to bring back if they decided to, you know. Uh, and then that's when you might see his value even get higher. It's because you know that you have yourself a guy and you didn't have to pay a lot to keep that type of guy around. But, you know, it's a position too where it's because of how he plays and he's not getting you big interior pass rush numbers to this point in his career. Um, you know, he's easily, easily replaceable too, but I think he's more of a culture guy. And, and I think that added to his value as a pick uh, for Marty Herney, at least, you know, to where, you know, they looked at him as like, you know, one of those guys who represents the team. Well, you know, as an ambassador type guy, kind of like Shaq Thompson is now. Yeah. And, uh, and what Dante Jackson has made himself into. And so, you know, Derrick Brown hasn't gotten there yet, you know, but, Let's see, you know, let's see what happens with him. I'm just yeah. glad that, you know, that he's on the roster. This is year three, hoping that he takes a leap forward. Ionitis, you know, beside him, I think is going to help him and yeah, maybe this. Um, and I think those guys are going to learn a lot from him and then be able to play off of him and continue to grow and develop. And I really think for Derrick Brown, um, part of the thing that's timing his growth is that I think since he's been here, he's been looked at as DT1 um, because KK got injured so early in his career. And then last year, um, I think Jones was a good um, guy beside him, but they were too similar. Yeah. And so, um, so Ionitis, you know, I think is is different enough from him to where you know he can get a lot more one on ones, and but he has to learn how to how to take advantage of those situations too better than he has in the past. And so, hopefully, he develops that part of his game and and becomes something different. But again, that puts us in a good position um, heading to the draft in terms of what we need to do for um, defensive tackle. Um, and then how we play off of other teams who might be going for defensive tackles later in the draft, and you know, but we'll know who these characters are. And so let's go through them, Vincent. Let's talk about the defensive tackles. You know, who are your top prospects, and then who may be a little bit overhyped. And then you know, we'll discuss that a little bit before we move on to safeties. Yeah, I think it's, it's as I mentioned earlier. Given that the Panthers will probably focus on UDFA in terms of defensive tackle, it's. I'm probably not going to highlight specific guys that, who make sense for the Panthers because it's just too hard to know who would get that far in the draft. Right. But in terms of the top guys, for me, there's two who really stand out. It's uh, Wyatt from Georgia yes. and, and Travis Jones from UConn. Um, okay. I, well, that, that's, that's interesting. And I want to talk about Wyatt real quick, you know, because I live not far from Athens, Georgia. And during the college football season, I would go to Athens and I would see – a big billboard, I think really two billboards in the area where they had a defensive tackle on the board, on the billboard saying this guy for Heisman. And it wasn't Devontae Wyatt. It was the other um, defensive tackle out of Georgia. So I find it interesting that you have Wyatt as as one of your top prospects. I think Wyatt is just really well-rounded. I think both Wyatt and Jones are really well-rounded. I think, but I think Wyatt is probably a more natural three tech and Jones a more natural one tech, but I think both are somewhat versatile in being able to play a little bit of both. Yeah. Um, I think Wyatt uses his hands really well. I think he plays with good pad level. Um, right. I think while he's not sort of a super twitchy, explosive athlete, I think he's got a good sort of 
uh, agility and fluidity. I think he's got more power than you'd expect from a player of his size. And I, I don't think he's some superstar, but I think he's just a really technically sound, reliable, consistent executor as a three tech who would be a, I think he'll be an immediately good run defender and a good enough pass rusher. I don't think his ceiling is that of like some, I, I don't, I be, you know, he's probably not going to become an all pro, but he's, he's a, a, just a really solid, dependable, um, consistent uh, interior sort of three tech slash one tech. Let me ask uh, you a question about Wyatt real quick. You know, and, and now you talking about him just made me just think about a guy that's on our team that we got a lot later in the draft, and that was Davion Nixon. Do you see any similarities in their game? Uh, I think Wyatt is much more consistent at executing the basics. I think okay. Nixon flashes sort of a power rush upside that I think Wyatt doesn't have. But I okay. think what Wyatt has is just consistent technical excellence. Gotcha. It's it's that kind of it's the thing that I think often gets talked about in terms of like Iowa offensive linemen. Just yeah. just just technically just really consistently good. And I think there's been some some Iowa defensive linemen who were in a way in a way, obviously you know, Nixon is an, an, an Iowa defensive lineman as well, of course. But in right. a way, I've forgotten the guy's name. But there was a the the Iowa edge rusher last year who I think went to the Cowboys. Uh, I can't think of his name either. Uh, what did he? I, I saw him. I saw him at the Senior Bowl. Yeah, I've completely forgotten his name. I apologize, whoever you are. But um, but <laughs> he, he was a guy again who did not have like standout athletic measurables, but yeah. was just really t- like Iowa's produced some really good technicians, and Nixon was kind of almost the outlier. Like you right. think of guys um, like the oh god Anthony Nelson, who's with the Bucks, who's sort of that sort of three tech five tech hybrid was just another guy who you know didn't wasn't necessarily an outstanding athlete but was just really technically good and i think that's more what wyatt is he's a good a good enough athlete and he is a good athlete don't get me wrong he is a good athlete not just like an okay he is a good athlete but yeah. he is his game is just about consistent technical excellence as much as anything else rather yeah. than explosive quickness yeah. um Jones is more of a nose tackle type guy, and he's just one of those players who, although he's, so I I should probably move on to one of the players I think is overhyped just to give the comparison. So Jordan Davis, who I still think is like probably a top three or four defensive tackle, probably he's the billboard guy that I was. Yeah, you know, (laughs) yeah, and he is. Don't wrong, he is the you know in terms of Raz, which is like the athletic. uh, measurable uh, score. Yeah. He is the most athletic defensive tackle that the NFL draft has ever seen. He is, right. you know, six six three forty one, and he's just some. He ran, he ran like a four seven or something. And I, I think it's one of those. It's one of those things where I think he would actually be a better player if he was a couple of inches shorter. Yeah. Like, don't me wrong. I think what he does is, you know, if you just want someone who is going to sit in the A gap and just not move, you can double team him, and he's just going to stay there. He can yeah. do that really well like he is a he's like base level execution of just anchoring in the a gap is great right Right. but but so much like he flashes the upside to do so much more and that's sort of hinted at by the athletic stuff but he's a bit like Derek brown when he came out the issue is and i think it's more exaggerated than it was for brown it's that the just the basics of technique are just not there consistently enough and i think for him it's mostly about the fact that he is six six and for yeah. him to match pad level is just really difficult. And like, he's just far too often. He just, he's just standing there. Like he's yeah, a big he just, guy and he's standing there, but he's not really doing anything other than standing there and being big. 
Yeah, it's, 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 it's more to block almost, you know, and, and I know that's like a, <laughs> that might not make sense to people, you know, but when I see Derek Brown play sometimes, I see him get like caught up like in the gap and where I would think he should be able to get some some penetration. He just got kind of stood up and stagnated. And, you know, like he's occupying that space, but, you know, he's not really penetrating. And that um, comes, a lot of time that comes back to knee bend. And I think that's what Travis yeah. Jones does so well is that he gets yeah. into these, you know, he gets double teamed, he anchors right. and then he penetrates. Yes. And, and, and it's just that step beyond. He's not just holding the space. He's actually right. then, you know, he's able to use his bend and he bends into the double team. And he splits right. the double team, not not like you know exploding through it, but he anchors yeah. and then penetrates, and that's what you don't really get from Jordan Davis a lot. Davis just anchors, and he can anchor against anybody. He is right. a hugely powerful man, and I think if right. he works his pad level out, I think there is a really good bull rush game that he could open up. Right. But it, it, it's just you know it, what, what you want from really powerful interior D linemen is to bend their knees, match pad level with their legs, strike to the chest, extend their arms, and just drive guys backwards. And yeah. once you, because if you can get that bit sorted, you can then build rip moves off that. You can use the threat of that power to create swim moves. You can, you can do all kinds of things off that, but you have to kind of get that consistent basis of pad level, hand placement, arm extension, bull rush. Like if you, you know, that, that is the, the core of what you should be doing as a 340 pound defensive tackle. And yeah. he just does not do it consistently. He can, the power bit is absolutely fine, but often he just gets too high and he's trying to bend his arms down to locate on the guy's chest and there's no arm extension and he just gets swamped. And what, once you get swamped, he can, he's got the strength that he doesn't get blown backwards, but he's not yeah. really getting any penetration. He's not, he's not able to work into gaps. He, he doesn't create the opportunities to use his hand usage, if that makes sense. No, because no, once, makes... once guys gets their ha- once once blockers gets that get their hand on your chest and are able yeah. to hold you at bay, you're kind yeah. of done. Like you know, yeah. most of the time you're done, and he just gets that happens just too often. And it's the same thing that happened with Derek Brown, right? It's, but it's but it's even more extreme. And I think it, it for him it really stems back to length. It's just yeah. he's so tall; it's hard for him to match pad level. And that's what I was thinking. And like the only thing that concerned me about Derek Brown is that you know when he came in, it was drafted number seven overall then folks automatically have this expectation that you know if you drafted that high overall then you need to be like Aaron Donald or somebody right where you can't even compare the two guys it's like no. anybody trying to compare a linebacker to like Luke Keekley or something you know like they're yeah, Don- Brown, Donald, Donald's just on a different level yeah Donald I mean and then it's like what you said and I, and I hope people caught what you said about Jordan Davis even it's like he could be a lot better prospect if he was a little bit shorter right like like Aaron Donald is six foot tall. Yeah. Right. He's he's six foot and like 285 pounds of pure muscle. Yeah. And so, you know, so like he has leverage. He yeah. has speed. He has power. He has all the things that you need to be a great pass rusher, whether you line him up in the interior of a defensive line or on the edge. Like he's just a a a monster, a a a six foot ball of muscle, you know, and it and with, with the quickest hands and feet. At yeah, position. yeah, and 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 relatively long arms. So I think that's the thing. What you want, you want, you want short defensive tackles who are really strong with long arms. Long you want, powerful arms. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you want that. You want natural leverage and length. And obviously, right. it's often a trade-off. And I think yeah. the issue is Jordan Davis is too far on one extreme. He has tons of length, but just right. he really struggles for natural leverage. Yeah. Um, and, and I think Derek Brown does too. But I think the thing that makes these 
these guys, you know, be viewed as such high um, prospects in the draft is that when you see a lot of college tape, like for me, when I watched um, Jordan Davis, right? And when I watched Derrick Brown, when I fell in love with Derrick Brown, it was actually on a goal line stance when he was playing against the Minnesota um, Gophers or whatever they are. Go, yeah. Uh, yeah and, and he basically like dominated like three downs of football yeah. from the defensive tackle position because they couldn't move him, yeah. right? I think Jordan Davis is the same type of guy. Like one of the, one of the, the biggest um, highlights from this University of Georgia season was the fact they weren't letting anybody score rushing touchdowns. Like they weren't giving up touchdowns in the, in the, no, on the goal line. Yeah. And Jordan Davis was a big reason for that. But as I watched them play no more competitive games and they were getting in situations where, um, you know, they would have to rush the passer, you know, a lot of times Jordan Davis weren't in them games, you know, yeah. or, you know in the, in the game during those downs. And they the same way the a Panthers, lot. yeah. In the same way the Panthers are when it comes to, Derrick Brown, a lot of people complain about, you know, he doesn't have the sack numbers to justify it. It's because, like, a lot of times in in, in obvious passing situations, Derrick Brown isn't on the field. Yeah. And and people don't pay attention to that, you know. And, and, and so I think Jordan Davis, you know, was looked at as, like, the top defensive player for that Georgia defense. Um, but he wasn't. No, he wasn't. Like, they, they, yeah. they, they were definitely much better players on that Georgia defense. Yeah. But he was, but he was like the poster child for them, you yeah. know, especially yeah. around here, you know, in the in the Athens, you know, Atlanta area, you know, he was the poster child for that defense, and you know, but just because he was that and he got all the hype, you know, he may have not been the best player on that defense, um, and so you know, but you know, I, but I think you have him right, you know, he's he's overhyped a little bit, but he's probably still like number three or number four. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think he's he's I, I don't think this is a super strong D tackle class at the top. I think he is right. one of the better tackle prospects. It's just like I've seen him in going top 20 in mocks and he is definitely yeah. not a player I would take in the top 20. And see, uh, you know, and that's the part that, you know, is really tough to really figure out, you know, how to really draft these guys, because like sometimes. You know, you think that way and I'm not saying that, you know, that you're wrong for thinking that way about Jordan Davis. Um, and, you know, you're absolutely right. Like, man, you know, like, that's too high to drop a guy like that. But then you you have a guy like Jeffrey Simmons, right? The one from um, – did he go to Ole Mississippi Miss? State. Yeah, Mississippi State. Yeah, Mississippi State, and now he's a Tennessee Titan. Like, I, he was big and disruptive, but he was a different type of disruptive, you know, in college, and, and that yeah. translates now. Yeah, I mean, I, he was a guy – he was one of those prospects who's like, you have one massive flaw. Either you're going to fix it and you're going to be really good, or you're not, and you're going to be terrible. And it right. took him a little while to fix it, but he's fixed it. And he's, yeah. he's fixed it, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, so there's, there's definitely guys you can take, you know, in the first round that play defensive tackle, you know, but, you know, whatever those flaws are, you would hope that they can overcome it and they can become dominant like you envision them. And it's just, you know, for a lot of guys, you know, the way that they're built, you know, how big they are is really dominant at the college level, but it may not translate, you know, to being dominant at the pro level. Um, especially when you've got big offensive linemen on the other side of the line that's really strong and got really good hands. And, you know, and if you are matched up against a really good interior offensive lineman as a defensive tackle, you can get manhandled. Yeah. I think just just the the other guy who I have in my overrated group, who very quite you know Jeffrey Simmons links into very nicely, is uh is Perion Winfrey, right. um, the Oklahoma defensive tackle, and he 
I think he has some of the same issues that uh, Simmons had in that there's just no knee bend whatsoever. He right. he he stands upright, and I think the the issue I have with with Winfrey is like he does penetrate well, he gets off the line quite well, and if he get you know if he lines over a gap and just shoots the gap, he is disruptive and he can make a real impact. Yeah. But if he has to move laterally at all, he does not do that well. And right. in the run game, he just he is so easy to move off the ball. Like if he's not shooting a gap, if he's just lined up over somebody, he yeah. just he his his hips and his sort of lower lower back upper legs are just so tight that right. he stands almost vertically and can't really twist at the weights. So yeah. he just gets driven completely off the ball. Um, I, yeah. yeah, I just it, I, I think he's somebody that maybe it, it, there is maybe a scheme. If you have a scheme that is just that wants a three tech who is just going to gap shoot as a three foot offensive end. Right. Then maybe you can find a way to. You know, he, he does do some good things as a pass rusher to make it make sense, but he is so bad as a run defender right now that he is almost impossible to put on the field in any situation where they might run the ball. You, you um, know, a guy, that, a guy that's smaller, but I saw him the same way as a defensive line prospect some years ago, um, and he never materialized into a guy. You know, that was um, Tank Carradine. I mean, he, he dealt with some injuries. But Tank was the guy that, you know, like he would often get stood up and get driven back. And you're like, man, you're supposed to be better than that. You know, like, you know, you're supposed to be, you got way more talent, you know, you know, than to get watched like that. But I wasn't paying attention to the nuances stuff like yeah. you just mentioned. I, I, I think with Winfrey, it's just, it's, it's a fundamental athletic, like hip tightness type thing where he yeah. just can't, he just can't bend into those positions. And right. so the bend happens at his shoulders rather than at his waist. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's just not where the power is. <laughs> Like, yeah. you know, you drive with your legs, not with your shoulders. And yes. he ultimately ends up having to try and drive with his shoulders. And uh, that's not going to yeah, be that. Yeah. yeah, especially at the NFL level. Because, like I said, the thing that a lot of times that you don't get to see with these, you know, these these really strong, big, physical defensive tackles that are playing beside other really talented, big, strong defensive tackles, sometimes against really inferior offensive linemen. You know, I think they really look spectacular in college. Yeah. Uh, and, and oftentimes you don't get to see them against, like, really good competition until they get into the bowl season um, or they're playing, like, you know, a big-time rivalry within their uh, conference or they're in the playoffs and they, they're seeing kind of equal talent across from them. Um, but a lot of these defensive tackles don't really run into guys who are as strong as them you know, and technically better than them until they get to the NFL. Yeah. And, uh, and I saw that song with, with Derrick Brown early, you know, is that I, I saw him get manhandled a little bit uh, early on. And, you know, he adjusted, you know, and he's getting stronger too. Um, but you can definitely tell when he's met somebody who is equally strong and, and better technically than he is. I remember the Dallas Cowboys game and, you know, it, it was the yeah. first time I actually saw him look, bad you know and um i i I think the big thing is as well that that if you like you were you know as a defensive lineman in the nfl you are gonna have snaps where the guy just out muscles you whether he just gets things right and you don't but the the the, the key thing with leverage as well is that it means that when you lose that initial contact you're in a balanced position that allows you to at least limit your losses the issue is if you don't have the and i think this is something you do see a bit with jordan davis as powerful as he is at times when he does lose that power battle, he just goes. Like there's just, there's, as soon as he loses the initial engagement, 
He's done. Because his weight is so high up that as soon as you get him off balance, if you can get him off balance, yeah. there is no way of him getting it back. And he's just done. Because Yeah. Well, he just isn't bending his legs. And, yeah. and, so, and so all the weight is so high up that, that, yeah. that as soon as you get that off balance, you're just, you know, you can move him like anything. Yeah. Um, and, and Winfrey just does that all the time and does not have the remarkable strength that Davis does to compensate for that. That, that makes sense. I haven't seen Winfrey play as much. Um, I didn't get a chance to, to watch them. Um, but but I can I can totally envision, you know, what you're saying is just based on how you're describing it. But the best thing about this is we're probably not going to draft any of these guys we talked about no. anyway because we don't have any. <laughs> and so, uh, so let's move on. Um, yeah. You know, let's get to the, to the next group, you know, where – well, we have depth, you know, we, we mentioned that depth earlier, um, but, you know, I still think there's room to improve this group. And so, yeah. and, and, and we may be able to find some value, you know, early on day three, because I've seen over the past few drafts where some good safeties were available, you know, still early on, on, on day three. So let's talk about the safety positions, but let's talk about who we have and we can get through that quickly because we just mentioned a lot of these guys. Yeah. Um, but then talk about these top prospects and who might be a little bit overhyped and then, you know, possibly who we can look at drafting if there's value later. So I'll run through this very quickly, as we already mentioned it. So at safety, I think Woods and Chin are going to start. I think right. um, Hartsfield plays this kind of like safety corner hybrid role. I think that yeah. will continue. And then you've got some combination of Burris, Robinson, Chandler and Franklin as the depth. I would imagine that not all those guys make the roster. And I think that's really where the competition is. I right. think there is there is probably room for the Panthers to add a safety later in the draft if they want to, just because yeah. there, you know, there is more ability to hide bodies than there is a defensive tackle where basically everyone has to play. Um, but I think that that probably this is another case of the the best case scenario being being either a UDFA or someone who you can sort of take late and just kind of stash and you know and can't come back to in a year um you know there are a few names we can mention but it's it's really more of a you know someone who you could draft fifth sixth round and just basically bench for a year so you're looking right. at you're looking more less i mean i won't try and name specific names because i've kind of ended up all over the place but you're looking more at traits there than to finish products you're not you're not drafting guys to play you're drafting you're just going like this guy moves really well and he has core skills let's develop him into something because i i think if you go for the well, this guy maybe doesn't have the athleticism we want, but we think he can be an okay starter. I think you're then just finding another guy of the Burris, Chandler, Franklin, Robinson. You're just adding another name into that conversation rather than right. someone who gives you fundamentally something different. Right. Um, in terms of the class as a whole, I think they're, you know, Hamilton from uh, Notre Dame is the, the guy who is being about the clear standout. And I think he is definitely the best prospect in the class. Um, I, I have a, a few questions about where he really fits, um, both in terms of like how he's used and what he does from a, a an athletic point of view. I mean, you know, notably his uh, you know, Hamilton's um, athletic testing numbers have been called into question a little bit in the last couple of weeks. Right. And I do think you watch on tape, and I you know, I think he's a bit like with Kyron Williams and the other Notre Dame guy, and also someone we might talk about in future weeks, Jalen Widemeyer, the um, Texas A and M tight end. You watch yeah. them on tape and you don't think this guy is an amazing athlete, but you think right. this guy is a good enough athlete to do what I need him to. And I think that's where I am with Hamilton. Like, yes, I, I don't think you watch him think this is some athletic phenom. He is not a Simmons or a Chin or someone of that kind of, you know, elite, elite athletic tier. 
Right. But I think he is still a a good athlete. Um, I think he shows really encouraging anticipation instincts, a really good understanding of where to be. I think he's a a good run defender. Um, I I don't have him as you know. I, I I don't think he is someone you should consider in the first round, or certainly not in the first half of the first round. I think he is. I don't think he is this game changing pick that that some people have talked about him being just it's, because. And so you're saying that, man, and, and I just got to add this. You know, obviously I'm a Notre Dame fan. You know, we talked about that. And I've probably seen Hamilton play more than anybody. And when I first saw him, I thought that's an NFL safety, right? Oh, yeah, no, he's definitely an NFL but, safety. But, but I want to, to commend you on saying what you just said because I watch every game. As well, I would say, you know, I'm, I'm almost, I've almost watched every game that Kyle Hamilton has played. You know, I've missed a couple. But Hamilton looks like an NFL safety because of his instincts, right? Yeah. And he's yeah. a really good, he, solid he, tackler. Yeah, and he's um, a, he, he is a plus athlete as well. It's I, Right. It, yeah. But, you know, you know who he reminded me of, and you're not going to like it, right? And I was going through my head. And trying to think, like, who does Kyle Hamilton really play a lot like, right? Because everybody has him being like this, this game-changing safety. And I even wanted to convince myself that he was that guy because I'm a Notre Dame guy. Um, but then I had to take a step back from it because I did see some games where, like, I, I saw him miss an angle, right? Yeah, I think, I, think, I, I think that's actually where his, his athleticism shows up most consistently is just yeah. – he just does not have the speed to get to take some of the angles he takes. It, and that's, I saw it. I saw it real time against, I don't know if it was Cincinnati. It was a bigger game that we played. And, and, he did it against and, Alabama in the national championship game uh, in 2020. He took for the, one of the first Alabama touchdowns. He just, he just took too aggressive a line and just, it was a line that the NFL safeties can take. And he just does not have that speed to take that. Line yeah. And, and, and that's the, and that's when I first started to question his movement. Right. But I, you know, I didn't, I was like, well, maybe he just had a bad play. So heading to the combine, I was wondering how he would test. Right. Because I just wondered what his speed actually was because I, I sometimes I question it real time. And I think he's a guy that over time, I think his instincts are so good at times that he looks faster than what he is. So somebody sent me a DM after the pro day last week, because I think there were rumors that came out that he ran closer to a four seven. Yeah. You know, and and so they were like, oh man, do you believe that? I was like, man, I said, it wouldn't surprise me if he is slower than than what people think he is. And they were like, well, you think he's a four seven? I said, I don't know. But I was like, I thought that him getting that four, five, nine or whatever it was at the combine wasn't that far off, right? And so I was like, although we want him to be a spectacular athlete because he has a lot of hype, and I think he's earned it, you know, for the most part. I love the guy. Um, I would like for him to be a Panther if he could be a Panther, but I think people need to have an expect, like a really good um, expectation of who he really is like. And so what I was, who I was thinking he's like, and he's he's not like this guy 100%, but the guy that I'm going to compare him to was a really, really good athlete, a really, really good um, tackler, had some good ball skills at the college level, um, 
and he was a former Panther. I think he's going to be projected to be a lot like Eric Reed. I um, know. I, I think he is. I think he is more. I think he is a better coverage player, not as good a run defender. I mean, um, I, I don't think I, I don't I, think I, he's the same. I just I just believe that when when Eric Reed came out of college, a lot of people thought he had better coverage skills than he had. Yeah. Um. He 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 really got messed up on crossers and stuff like that, where he wanted to, you know, to to kind of cheat up um, across his career, you know, even into Carolina. Cal Hamilton is a guy that I think he's better, a better overall rangy guy than Reed was at LSU. Oh yeah, by by a long way. Yeah, yeah. And so I, I won't discredit him there, but he he's not as fast as Eric Reed was, right? Um, I think he, he might not be as straight line fast. I think he moves much better. I think I think that's the thing is like while he's not, I think so. The, the thing for me with Hamilton is that if you're looking at safety, you have to also look at how you use them because there isn't yeah. like a safety position. There's lots of different ways to use the guy. Yeah. Eric Reed was a box safety. Yeah. And I think like his last year in Carolina, where things started to fall apart a bit, they tried using him in deep coverage and it just clearly did not belong there. I think Carl Hamilton is his value is in deep coverage. I think he is a good deep coverage player. I think the issue is is what he is not ultimately is a center field single high safety. That's what I was going to ask you. So and, if, if he's a deep safety, if he's truly like a a four six four, and this is me talking about a guy that I actually love now, you know. So I'm just trying to get a real sense of how to set my expectations for him as a pro versus how I saw him in college. Because after a while, he's not going to be a Notre Dame guy. He's going to be a a player for whoever he plays for. Mm-hmm. If he truly is a four, six, five guy, right? How many of those guys are actually playing deep safety? I think NFL? it depends what you mean by deep safety. So I think he can play cover two. I think he can play yeah. cover four. Um, yeah. I think he can play cover three on occasions. I think he, you know, I think he can be, if you play like a, a split cover two safety setup, he can be your free safety. He can right. also probably be your strong safety in that look as well. Right. Right. What he probably can't be is the cover one, cover three, center cover field, three. Ed Reed, yeah. Earl Thomas right. type safety. He does not. Yeah. You know. Well, I think that's the. I think that's people's vision for him. Yeah, and right. I, I don't think he's that. Yeah, I think I think that's how. Even before I really looked at him deeper into this season, I think that's how people projected him, and I don't. I don't think he's that. Yeah, and I think that's the issue that I come back to in terms of projecting him to the NFL. But I think he's, you know, he's my top safety. I think he's very good. I would probably take him early second round, um, mm-hmm. uh, late first, early second. He's in that sort of range for me. Yeah, early second probably seems about right. Um, yeah, I don't. I know he won't. He won't drop that low. That no, no, I know he won't. But but I, but I think it's the thing is like I think this is the conversation I come back to in terms of like certain positions. You know, people get really locked into oh no, this is the safety who's different. You know, you know, yeah. I mean, I was not super high on Quentin Nelson. I'm still have probably more prisons of Quentin Nelson than some people do. But like, yeah. Do you know how incredibly good you have to be as a guard? Just it's the same thing with you. Know, we talk about Derek Brown. Like Derek Brown can be a good defensive tackle. He can even be like an above average, you know, starting defensive tackle, like a top twenty defensive tackle in the NFL, and he yeah. still will not justify the seventh overall pick. Like, <laughs> right. if Carl Hamilton is the twelfth best safety in the NFL, he is not worth a top ten pick. He, you know, if you're taking a safety in the top 10, they have to be a top two or three guy at that position in the NFL. It's the same yeah. thing that I'll come back to with, um, oh God, who's the tight end? The uh, Carl Pitts. 
Carl yeah. Pitts had a really good rookie season. He's a really good tight end. He was a, probably was a top 10, maybe top 15 pick in the draft for me. Like, you know, I would have definitely taken Carl Pitts in the first round. Absolutely. Right. But not number four. <laughs> yeah, you have, for him, for us to, in 10 years' time, for us to look back and go, that was a really good pick. He has to become, like, oh, genuinely man. one of the two or three best tight ends to have ever played the position. Yeah. In the same way that, you know, there are, there are big boards that have Carl Hamilton as a top two, top three, top four prospect. For him yeah. to have to be taken in the top four, he has to become up there with Reed and, you know, Palomalu as one of the best safeties, and Earl, like Prime Earl Thomas, as one of the very best safeties to have ever played the game. And yeah. I think the, if that is your, your like bar to meet, that is a bad draft pick. Like, uh, you, know, you want to be taking players where you think there's like a 50 50 chance that they exceed that bar, roughly. And so you're setting. I mean, so we can just say this about Kyle Hamilton then as it pertains to the Carolina Panthers, right? Because they should it, not it, take Kyle Hamilton. Yeah, so they should not take Kyle Hamilton with anything in the first round. Like, even if they trade back, it shouldn't be for Kyle no. Hamilton. No, I mean, and, and I'm just going to just put that to bed for anybody who's listening. I'm a big Kyle Hamilton guy. And a lot of people have asked me when I do my little, you know, big board or, you know, wish list for the Panthers. It's like, you wouldn't take Kyle Hamilton. Like, uh, not for this team, you know, and, and not right now. As much as I like the guy, I don't think he's what we need. Um, if somehow, some way, you know, we ended up, you know, getting him, you know, whatever. It's like, it, okay, we got Kyle Hamilton and I would be happy for him, you know, just for the ties to Notre Dame, but uh, but I'd be disappointed, you know, to an extent too. And so, but that's that's your top guy. That's Hamilton. Yeah. Right? So the the other, the other the other the the other top guy I have, who is not as far as I thought he might be behind, is uh, Kendall Joseph okay. from Illinois. Um, yeah. He is much more of a projection. He okay. you know he has the range. You know he definitely has the some of the anticipation and ball skills. Right. Um, but he is moves really fluidly really nice athlete um looks the part in terms of how he moves in space and how he's able to anticipate and create on the back end i think what you want to see is for him to kind of he was kind of moved around a little bit at illinois he didn't sort of have a clear you know you know you are this guy role i think he one he needs to get better as a run defender in terms of his tackling um i think he also needs to if he's gonna i think he has man coverage potential whereas i think like one thing with hamilton is in terms of his man coverage he can play man coverage, but it's probably going to be mostly against tight ends. And his length gives him real value there because he is a really big safety. Yeah. But, but if you put him on like you know most slot receivers, he's going to have issues in man coverage. Um, yeah. Just 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 in terms of if they work vertical, he's just going to get run by potentially. Right. Um, I think I think Joseph has the ability to play man coverage in the slot a fair amount. Um, yeah. But I think if he's going to do that, he has to work on his technique. So um, for me, he's you know I think he's more of a projection and he's definitely a guy, you know, I think he will go too early to fit the Panthers, but if yeah. he's there in the fourth round, then he's someone who I think is someone you could draft, sit for a year, develop and could then come in and kind of be a really, really high quality safety. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny because, you know, like at this point of scouting the culture last year, like my guy Cisco. You know, is Cisco, you know, and, Cisco at least he did earn a starting spot, you know, on a bad team. Yeah, I think but, I, I think Cisco is better than I think Cisco is a he he has a similar kind of ceiling to Cisco. I think he's just yeah. even less developed than Cisco is. Yeah, and and you know, but you no, know, you describing him made me think of Cisco. Yeah, and, uh, but, I almost you know, ma- I almost mentioned Cisco whilst describing him, so that that is definitely <laughs> a, a there's definitely a similarity to them as prospects. Yeah, and so you know, but I got another guy too that I'm a I'm gonna bring up. 
in this uh, top prospects because you know Hamilton and Joseph are yours. Um, it's more of a question, but it's somebody that I like because I saw him a lot when I was watching other guys at UGA. And that's, uh, is it Lewis Seen? Yeah, he's probably my number three safety. He's your number uh, three? Yeah. Um, that, makes, that makes my heart happy. <laughs> I think he's one of those guys who I'm, I think he can come in and do a role and do it well. Um, yeah. I'm not sure he, I, I'd, I'd be surprised if in five years' time you look back and think, man, look at the all pro safety that scene has become. Yeah. But I think I can, he, I can see that. I, I think he's that. a really good run defender. Yeah. Um, I think he's, better in man coverage than you might think. I think he has some fundamental athletic limitations. I think he's, his footwork is inconsistent, um, but is consistently not ideal. Um, yeah. he, 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 I think, I think I, my guess is he's probably naturally a bit pigeon-toed. Yeah. Um, and his back pedal... Is, is it when he flips? Is it when he flips for you? No, it's, it's actually in his back pedal. His legs don't go straight. They either okay. come in and his back pedal, which just means that when you do flip, it creates problems. Like, it's one of those things where the, the problem comes when he flips, but you can okay. see the problem occurring before he flips. <laughs> what you want is your weight. Yeah, you want your weight to be equally balanced so you can explode off either leg. And his weight is really pushing it either like he's a bit pigeon toed and it kind of pushes inwards. And so then when okay. he breaks, he kind of has to like twist his knee out and it doesn't quite, there's like a little jerkiness. Or he does the opposite and he consciously goes, right, I'm going to bend my knees out when I backpedal. And then there's just, it's almost sort of slightly flaky. He um, had a little choppiness to him when I was watching him at the combine. Yeah, no, he definitely has. I was trying to figure out what I was seeing, but I was he, like, oh, I don't like that, but I couldn't, I couldn't see what it was when he opened up. He does a really good job of limiting its impact, but I think it is ultimately going to inhibit how good he Like, I think he, it, he's kind of where he's at, and I don't think he's really going to get much higher than where he's at. I got you. I got um, you. But I'm glad he's your number three, though, because at least I'm yeah. like, okay. I, I, I like my eyes. I usually trust them. And I don't want to have this discussion without talking about him. No. So I think that brings us on to two other guys who are often seen in that sort of top conversation with okay. Hamilton and Sign, which is the two guys who I think are a little overhyped. Um, so Daxton Hill is the Michigan safety, who yep. is some being talked about as like a first round pick. Right. And I think he's actually got quite a lot of potential. I think importantly, I think he's one of those guys where how he has been used at Michigan and where I think he will be best are quite different roles. So I think there's a bit of projection there. Um, okay. He was used almost like a slot, like nickel corner type guy, he played a lot of man coverage. And I yeah. think while I think he's got really good long speed and actually when he, when he opens up and is able to run, I think that's why in deep coverage, I think he's got a real potential to cover uh, in deep zone. But I yeah. think that he again has a bit of a choppiness. I think there's a real, there's a bit of a tightness to his hips. And I think in, I think he will struggle to play man coverage consistently against better route runs. Okay. Um, but I think his range, and he does show reasonable instincts and ball skills, but I think if he's able to take what are, like, ultimately you need better movement skills to play man than you do to play zone. Right. But, if he's, but his movement skills, while they limit him if he's going to play man all the time, they would be plus attributes in zone if they combine that with his speed and his ball skills, and he's able to spend more time in zone, he's able to build his instincts that I think there is the basis of a really good player there. Yeah. Um, I just think that he's not this plug-and-play, you know, hybrid safety nickel guy that he's being talked about as being. I just, I just think his man coverage just ultimately is not going to be good enough. Um, okay. uh, the other is uh, Brisker, Jaquan Brisker from Penn State. 
Yeah. He's a really confusing player for me. Um, <laughs> he's not bad. I could see him being really good, but it's one of those things where he was just used in a way that I think really limited his impact a lot of the time. Right. He was just, you know, he was kind of used as often in like cover two look in quite, you know, didn't put, didn't often was not given tons of responsibility in, in coverage or in the run game. And it's not because he couldn't handle it, but I think he just, he's someone who a team, you know, again, he's sort of primed for being just developed for a bit. I think yeah. he, he needs a team that has a clear vision of, okay, this is what he does best. And this right. is where he's going to go. And we're going to develop him into this role. Because right. I think at the moment he's kind of, he hasn't got any horrible weaknesses. It's very hard to find anything to really criticize about his game, yeah. but it's quite easy to watch his tape and just come across to sort of lack any real positive impression to just sort of think, I'm, I'm not sure what it is you do really well. Right. Uh, right. And I, I think there's, there are, there are definitely examples and we've you know, talked about them part and Penn state has been quite good at popping these guys out to be fair of like yeah. good athletes who aren't necessarily good football players, particularly on yeah. defense. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, someone with Micah Parsons last year went, you know, this is what you do. Well, we are going to maximize this and this is your role. You know, because a lot, you know, Micah Parsons, there were a lot of snaps on defense for Penn State where Micah Parsons just, again, in zone coverage, not really doing very much, not really impacting yeah. the game. Right. Um, and it took someone to go, okay, right, we're not going to play that zone coverage. That's fine. You're just going to line up and rush the passer when we do that. Yeah. And I think Brisker needs someone to do a similar thing where they go, okay, this is what you do well. We're going to play to this. You know, either I think he has the tools to do a lot of different things. But at the moment, I'm, it, it's a, it's a bit like Simmons, though, when he came out of Clemson. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, he's played single high safety and edge rusher and linebacker. And it's like, yeah, okay, he does all of these things. But I'm yeah. not sure he's like, actually at like, a really good level at any of them. Yes. Like, he, you know, and Briscoe is almost the opposite, where he's done the same thing a lot and is kind of fine at it, but it hasn't really forced him to develop any, you know, he doesn't consider you know, he doesn't show like consistently high level anticipation on the back end, but he shows good movement skills, but he's not consistently playing around the box. And it just it, he feels like a player without a role. Right. Um, and I think while I think there is definitely a chance for him to grow into that, I think I wouldn't, you know, again, he's not someone I've taken a top 40 picks unless I had a very, very clear idea of what it is I thought he could do. And I'm not sure I do watching him on tape. Yeah, and, and that's I don't want guys like that, right? Because I don't want to draft guys like that, right? You get one of them as a undrafted free agent, and you find their role. And you know, like you said, he ends up being that ten percent guy that makes your roster somehow and becomes a guy, kind of like Miles Hartsfield. Yeah, I, I, I yeah, Miles Hartsfield is definitely a guy who you watched on tape and you thought, well, why would you sign this guy? And yet he, yeah. you know, he, you know he, he is one of those players who just he has become a far better player than I ever thought he would do based on his tape. And that's the that's that's where I want to find them guys at, right? But if I'm yeah. drafting the guy, like I want to know how I envision him on my team, like specifically. Yeah. And you know, if you're a defensive coordinator and you see a guy like that and you don't know how you're gonna use them, then don't draft them. And that, you know, because you know, you mentioned Simmons from Clemson. I was high on Simmons because I'm, you know, I'm all captivated by like all these different things I saw him do, like at safety, then at linebacker, his range and his speed and this and that. But the one thing I respect the Panthers for not doing is not drafting him, right? And, and, and because I'm like, if you don't know how you want to use him, if you don't know if you like him, don't pick him, right? Yeah. And so I know in a perfect world, 
you know, you know exactly how you want to use them and you pick them and you make them that, right? Yeah. But, but I don't want is, there, 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 is poss- there, there is quite possibly a defensive coordinator out there going, well, I know how to use him. He's this. And, they have, they, and they, they've watched it and they've seen what I haven't seen. And that, so I, don't, I should point out this, not that that doesn't exist for Brisker. I'm just, if there is that clear role to put him into, I'm just not sure what it is. Yeah, and, and that's the thing, you know, like just if, if you get a guy like that, just have a plan and I'm all for it, you know, but just be able to convey what that plan is, you yeah. know, if you're going to if you're going to pick them. And so, you know, I, I hate when guys get on your team and you don't know what to do with them. I think Peppers got caught up in that a little bit, you know, Jabril yeah. Peppers, um, you know, and, and you know, because he had all the, the metric stuff. He was fast, you know, he was, a, you know, twitchy, you know, bit hitter, and then he was a, a returner. So people just get caught up in the football player, you know, but then yeah. don't know how to use them right. And then, and, and then some of that is on them, but some of, some of it is on the staffs too. Um, so yeah, yeah I, th- I, I think I think there's also a bit. There are definitely football. I mean, this is not really relevant to Briscoe, who I don't think was used in this way. But there are definitely football. T- you know, I think it was true with with um, both Simmons and um, Peppers. Yeah. Is the idea that you get football coaches, particularly college coaches, who focus more on basically winning games than developing players, <laughs> and ultimately, you know, that is what they are paid for. You know, their yeah. money depends on their wins, not their development of players. Yeah. Um, and so you end up not misusing guys, but rather than developing someone into a clear role that they can succeed at moving forward, you just try and jam them in as many places as possible to make as much of an impact. Well, and I, and I think, you know, that's the thing where we are as a team right now. We know Phil Snow has a big impact on how this roster looks, right? Especially, I mean, defensively. I would say, you know, it's, it's all him, you know, and Matt Rule, you know, trusts him a lot. Yeah. Uh, you know, with how he builds that defensive side of the ball. Um, I think one of the things that concerns me about Phil Snow uh, and Matt Rule as a tandem is that when, the, when they were at the college level, they were able to just get these freak athletes, right? Yeah. And, you know, one of them is a guy that we haven't even mentioned, and I don't know if he's a safety or – Petrie. Petrie, Yeah. Yeah, I, I I've been watching him because I'm like he's a rule guy, through and through. I, I think he's he's very much a guy where you're like, well, how you played in college is not a thing in the NFL. Yeah, and I don't know. I I, I quite like you know Petrie. What he did, what he did at college, he was really good at. But yeah, that's not a thing that he can do in the NFL. You can't. And, and that's. No, go ahead. Say say say, it's, say it's what all, you're about it's, it's almost like a box nickel. Yeah. Um and you know that's just not you. You know, he was he just blitzed all the time from like safety. Like you know, yeah. you, he didn't really play a lot of coverage as a safety. Yeah. And you, right. you know, at the NFL level, they just you can't get away with that. You have to. You have so, to. You know, so that said, like, do you see them in the way that they run our scheme, at least on the back end? Do you see them kind of like misusing Chan that way? I. I, I think there's definitely a risk of it. I mean, I, I, I think Chin works best in and around the box. Yeah. I, I, I don't think he's a linebacker, um, no. but I think... Oh, yeah. yeah, but in some but, way that you have to play him, that's... But yeah, that's he, like, he's, he's that... Well, I think I, I can't remember I said this the other week, but for me, he's kind of the... He's your D-gap defender. Like, you know... Wherever you know, if if across the gaps, yeah. So basically, basically he's the guy that should be lining up outside the tight ends. 
Yeah. And so, but like, I mean, I know like for a lot of defenses, they consider that the Joker role. Other defenses say that's big nickel. Um, yeah, it, it is a bit like big nickel because it's one of those things where if they split four wide, then he goes out with the wide guy. And if, and yeah. you know, and he can play a bit in the slot and maybe he can roll, you know, if you play some cover two or some two high safety, he can play some two high safety. But right. he's best working as the, the box safety in a single high setup where he yeah. can, you know, he's a good coverage player, but his coverage value is more in man coverage than zone at this point. And his yeah. ability to drop underneath routes and read and anticipate. And his ability, you know, he's a fantastic tackler. He closes space really well. He's a great flat defender, um, both in the run game and in the passing yeah. game. And, you know, that, that's where I think his value is, is not, you know, is not playing center field. I don't think that's his, I, his strength. I, I actually saw him play. And I went to the game against the Redskins, and I was sitting right behind um, the goalposts, and they were down in the in the red zone, and and I saw him setting up at safety, and they kind of like they were in the zone, and he kind of stepped up and just like man his station, and they just threw, they just dropped the ball right over his head, and he just looked just lost, and I know he's not a bad player. I just worry, you know, because I was like, it, are you, is that natural for you? You know, it's like they, they, they put him in the place and was like, okay, you sit with three, you can jump, you know, and let's just bet that they can't get this ball over you. Yeah. I mean, and they, I, they went right at him, you know, and then yeah. I was like, oh, like, you I, know, like. <laughs> I, I think the other big thing is that, you know, I, how do I put this? Luke Keekley is clearly not a player you should ever compare anybody to because he, you know, again, it's that thing of, you know, he reached that high percentage that, that you can't, you shouldn't, is not a fair expectation to place on anybody. Yeah. But I think the other thing to note is that Luke was not Luke from day one. Right. You know, it took Luke a couple of years to really feel at ease in that position and to, you know, maybe at least a year to feel at ease in that position. <laughs> but he was dominating all the way through, it seems like. You know, like he oh, no, he, no, he, 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 Rick of the year. Oh, no, he, no, 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 he, no, he, no, he, don't wrong. Like, he was yeah. really good as a rookie, but he was right. not Luke Luke until a couple of years. Partly, he was a cerebral Luke. Yeah, well, he, he was, was definitely cerebral, but he was not, you know, God of football Luke for a couple <laughs> of years. I, he right. just, he, I, I, I don't think we, we talk enough about just how out. Rem- outstandingly good a football player Luke Kickley was. He was just... Uh, I agree. He, he I is agree. the best linebacker to ever play the game, and I don't even a, think I'm a, it's really I'm going to tell you this, and, and for the listeners, right, like, I, I, I'm very open about, you know, how I followed the Panthers across the years, but I did spend a lot of time um, as a as a 49ers guy growing up, and so, you know, when Luke came in the league, um, it was at a time where Patrick Willis was in San Francisco and he was at the height of his game. He was yeah. in his prime and they were winning football. You know, they were playing winning football for the first time while he was a 49er. I thought Patrick Willis was the best football player in football. Like I thought I had him at the time over Ray Lewis, who had been the dominating linebacker from the generation. Yeah. Before, um, yeah. And so here was Patrick Willis, who I thought had ascended to the top inside linebacker in the game and then Luke Kuechly shows up and at first I was like okay you know let's see what this fella can do I, I remember him from um, Boston College I guess I think it was Boston College and I was like okay you know but who respects Boston College you know and so Panthers picked him up and I was like oh that's a cool pick you know and I started watching him and 
I didn't see him all the time, but I think the first time I really like really paid attention to Luke was like early in 2013. And it was the Panthers versus the 49ers. And that was always a no-lose game for me. But they came to San Francisco. And I was like, and I, I'm seeing both of the players on the field at the same time. And I was like, hold up. Like this dude might be like that. And I, and I, and I, and, and, and from that moment, I could never take my eyes off of Luke Keekley. And honestly, and I'm being a hundred percent real when I say this. And however people want to remember the last decade of Panthers football is on them. But the 2013 and the 2014, Luke Keekley was the MVP of this team. Cam, yeah, Cam yeah. wasn't there yet. Cam had, had the offensive rookie of the year, but I felt like in 13, this team was more ready to win than the 15 team. It's just Cam hadn't got there yet. Yeah. But 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 that year, 2013, I thought this was Luke Keekley's football team. And and honestly, when Cam called up, it was in 2015. And then he went to the next level, and that's when it's a 15 and one team. But yeah, you're right. And I hate to get caught up in talking loop, but you brought him up, and you know that's 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 my. Oh no, he, he he he's. And, and so you, you're right. It's 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 this level of football. I I do I know where you're going with the whole Jeremy Chan thing with him, and I know that it's not it's not that we expect Jeremy Chan to even touch Luke's status, you know, as a player. It's just that. I remember, you know, that's who he attached himself to when he came in as a rookie. Yeah. And, yeah. but, and but I, I see. No, go ahead. No, no, so I, I think the important thing is for me is that I think it's good, you know, even if Jeremy Chin, assuming he does not become, you know, god of football too, right. um, I, I, I think he would benefit. Like the, the thing that is lacking from his game currently is that kind of consistent anticipation and, you know, pattern recognition underneath and, it, and right. you know, it took josh norman three years to work that out like you right. know you josh norman was someone obviously playing a different position but like every preseason he would make tons of picks and i would be like why isn't this guy starting and then he wouldn't start right. for the whole year right. and it was because he just gambled all the time yeah. and the, the thing that changes as he went into year three and year four he just he started recognizing patterns consistently so that he knew when to gamble and know when to sit off. Yeah. And, and currently, Jeremy Chin just doesn't gamble very much, which is definitely the That's smarter true. way to approach things. Yeah. And the thing that Luke Keating did just better than anybody else is he he knew when to gamble. And he hit. And he, he was he was for a linebacker. He was remarkable. You know, he, the number of interceptions he got, people just don't like. People talk about his ability to recognize the run and his tackles and that stuff. He had so many picks and like. And, and, and created picks, not just like, oh, the ball just got thrown to him underneath kind of picks, like ones where he is actively anticipating and dropping under and picking off ball. Yeah. And, that, and to me, when I compared him and Pat Willis, I knew that was the separator for me. Yeah. Like I thought both of them approached the run game the same. You know, yeah. like Pat was very anticipatory. Like he read defenses, he read runs, he, he you know, he met defenders in the backfield, he popped crossers and tight ends you know like he was all of that and luke was all of that but pat couldn't drop like luke no and i think that was the thing 
because Luke had both the two things. This is just becoming the Luke Keekley podcast, but right, Luke right. had both the fantastic anticipation and remarkable movement skills for a man of his size. Like he was a yeah. a remarkable athlete. Because I think like one of one of my favorite linebacker prospects from recent years is Logan Wilson, probably my favorite yeah. linebacker prospect. Um, yeah, yeah, who was went from Wyoming, and he right. was a guy who was like had great anticipation, but what he just didn't have was the that like top end athleticism. Like right. you know, he made you watch his game against his on his Wyoming tape, and and he's had lots of picks at, for Cincinnati as well. Like he's a legitimately really good at linebacker, but he just what he doesn't have is the kind of that range. Like you know, he 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 just you could see you know he'd make these really great anticipatory reads, and he would get turnovers from it. But there were just he just didn't have the range that Luke had. Luke just could just cover this huge amount of space, and he could play. Yeah. He could play. He could. He could also go and play man coverage at a really high level as well. Um, and often you get guys who like like Shaq Thompson has always had that movement skills, and right. and and but has just never had the consistent ball production. Yeah. You know, he, he you know, and you get guys like Logan Wilson who have the ball production but don't have the man coverage flexibility and stuff. And Luke well, was just this like perfect combination of traits. No, I, I think. I mean, I think you're right. You brought up Logan Wilson, and the first play that popped up in my mind was the Super Bowl play. Um, at the end of that game. And I think his reputation of not being a coverage guy kind of let them throw that flag, you know, that, that I thought they should have thrown um, because he really had a really good defensive play that would have, that could have changed that game. And, See, and the, I, I, Logan Wilson not being a coverage guy is a really interesting narrative for me. For a guy who was a rookie allowed a 66 parter raising and has six interceptions in his first two seasons. Like, like <laughs> don't be wrong. He has limitations um, in terms of like he's not going to play tons of man coverage and stuff. But just right. I think often people miss you know when people think coverage they think freakish athleticism and you know all these things and they're wrong those things are useful. But particularly when you're playing these linebacker roles, often you're not yeah. covering that much space. And the big right. determinant is can you see what's going to happen before it happens. Yeah. Um, and and I think Logan Wilson has that to a really high level. I think I will, we'll talk about it in a future podcast. I think Chad Moomer, who is coming out of Wyoming this year, um, has has that. Um, and people people have been talking to me about him, so I can't wait till we get to that episode. I, I think he might be the best player in the draft. Like I'm Ooh. not even joking. I I just I you know Come on, I, man. Oh, I I oh. so you just messed me up. You know what? <laughs> With that said, I'm going so off topic. In this, this episode <laughs> right now. Because first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to have to go and watch this Mooma guy because I've had people in my DMs talking to me about Mooma. He's kind of faded from the conversation. But ahead of the combine, people wanted me to see Mooma. I did go and look at him, but I didn't spend a lot of time. Um, I'm really big on linebackers. And, and, yeah. and I'm an old school guy that way. And But I don't like talking about linebackers because the way people treated me last year when I talked about Michael Parsons and stuff like that. So I don't – I like Devin White. I like – I like all these guys who come out, you know, every year. And I believe in first-round linebackers, even though people don't think it's wise to draft them in the first round either. I'm a guy that would. And so I just don't allow myself to go down that rabbit hole because I get hype about, it, you know, because my favorite players of all time have been, well, besides Jerry Rice uh, and Joe Montana and, you know, and, and, and but after that, you know, it's, it's Luke, it's Pat Willis, you know, it's, it's guys that played that position and, and, I'm a person that wants the, the Panthers to have a top tier linebacker again because I believe that you need one here and yeah. I believe that part of our identity. And so, um, so, but you just said you said top play in the draft. Anyway, 
Look, might be. I, I, I'm still working this out, but I, he is, I, I, he's I, so good. I'm going to end this episode on that. You know, I think it was good. And honestly, I thought this was going to be a short one, but we always find a way to make them long. <laughs> um, you know, but we talked about the defensive tackles. You know, that's not something that we think in the Panthers are going to draft for this year. It might be undrafted free agents, but we talked about the top tackles, um, top ones being um, Devontae Wyatt, Travis Jones. Um, Jordan Davis was mentioned, um, along with Renfrey as being um, guys who have potential, but they might be a little overhyped. We'll see what happens. They probably won't be Panthers, but it'd be interesting to see how they fall. Um, then we talked about the safety position. Again, the Panthers have a lot of depth at safety. Um, you know, there are some some prospects that everybody knows, like Hamilton and Joseph and um, and Lewis Science scene. I don't know how to say his name, but it's one of those. Um, and, you know, the guys who might be overhyped, like Daxton Hill and, and Jaquan Brisker, um, who knows with safety, you know, like where you're going to be able to draft these guys at. You know, it's just all about the trace. I think, you know, for the Panthers fans, I think we just need to pay attention to how we play the position. You know, we do have a full room. Um, but, you know, if one of those guys drops into day three, you know, and, you know, they might be the best player available there, you know, who knows, they might take a swing on one. I do think it's a position group where we can stand to improve, even though it's solid right now, at least on paper. Um, to me, the biggest question about safety has always been, if Jeremy Chan is your starting safety, um, how to get the most value out of him being yeah. a true safety and I don't know that answer yet and right now I'm having to trust year three Phil Snow after seeing him play a year at linebacker and then seeing him play a year at safety if he's going to keep him at safety I hope he has a plan that makes sense to get most the most out of him yeah Vincent mentioned, you mentioned the thing and I'm, I'm gonna stay here for a second he doesn't take risk yeah. um he's a he plays conservative and I don't know if that's considered out of phase or whatever, you know, for safety, like it is for corners. But, you know, it keeps you from giving up big plays, but you might not, you know, make the turnovers that we want to see him make or that we believe he has potential to make him because we've seen him create turnovers in the past. I think that's why we want to see him closer to the line of scrimmage. I have advocated for him playing outside linebacker. You say, you don't think he's a linebacker. That's fine with me. I just believe that if he's not, going to be a linebacker we need to find some way big nickel or whatever position you want to call it to get him closer to the line of scrimmage so I think he can be more instinctual because what I saw in year one versus year two is that his instincts took over a lot and and, and made bigger plays than I saw him be able to make from safety I think playing safety he just played you know his role and what safeties are there for not to let big plays happen behind him I, and I, I think, I think I think that Ed Reed role that he played in Carolina, when when that sort of you know in the in his sort of the season before he got the yeah. extension, I think that would be a, a, a great fit. A I think I think that, that yeah that sort of twenty eighteen Ed um, Eric Reed role. Yeah, I think yeah, that would be a, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think that yeah. would be a really good fit for him. And I and I can see that. I just want to see it happen. But you know that's all we have for this week, folks. You know we we talked about you know the quiet. Um, that we're going through right now, this might be the eye of the storm. And so if it is, you know, I just, I hope that the other end of it isn't too um, turbulent. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, we talked about the defensive tackle position group, you know, the safety position group. And, you know, next week it'll be a new group and, you know, we'll let you know what that is when it's time. And so um, that's all we have. Um, again, you can find me at Panthers Culture on Twitter. You can find Vincent at B Richardson 444 on Twitter. Yep. Um, if you 
like to talk about the episode or any other position groups, you know, we're always available. You know, we try to get to you when we see the tweets. Um, as always, we see, you know, the um, the the tweets that logged, you know, the, the podcast. That makes me feel very good because we put a lot of time into these and we really enjoy doing them. So we enjoy the fact that you listen to them, that you get something out of it. Yeah. Um, and that overall, you like the show. So if you haven't done so, please subscribe you know, rate and review and let, you know, let our folks know, you know, what you think of us. But uh, thank you for rocking with us. You know, thank you for rocking with the culture uh, until then. Oh, before I wrap this up, Best, did you have anything? No, I'm, 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 I'm all out of thoughts. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm all thought out and I'm hungry and I know you're hungry, you know, over there where yeah. you are across the pond. And so, um, but anyway, you know, like I was saying, thank you all for listening. Um, and continue to stay with us until we um, get through all of the position groups. Until then, peace. Goodbye. Thank you.